I come from the perspective of if you have the chance to support a fully vegan ethical business, why would you not? These are restaurants that for us show how the future is going to be. You know, why would you not want to put a higher demand for those places with other restaurants, whether it's meat or chicken or whatever, or vegetarian even? I would only go there if I don't have the option to go to a vegan restaurant because for me, if they're serving cow meat, let's say, it's the same as them serving dog meat. And if I'm not going to feel comfortable sitting down in a restaurant that serves dog meat, why would I sit in a restaurant that serves cow meat? It's also when you have friends, you know, even if they're not vegan, it's great to bring them to a vegan restaurant just because it normalizes veganism so much more. And plus, that meal they're going to have with you, they're not going to be eating animals because they're not in another restaurant. They're at a vegan restaurant. That's animal activist Seb Alex. And this is episode 88 of The Proof Podcast. friends, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Awesome to be back here again for another episode. For new listeners, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, the Plant Proof Podcast, physiotherapist, nutritionist, and currently writing a book on nutrition with Penguin, which will be published next year. I'm glad you managed to find the show and I really hope you get something out of today's episode that helps you become more mindful and conscious of the way that you live. That's what each episode is all about, a non-judgmental, non-preachy space to talk about diet, to talk about being mindful of our decisions, and really an opportunity to sit down with inspiring people from all over the world doctors, nutritionists, dietitians, athletes, people who have overcome chronic disease, and generally folks that are are working hard to create positive change in the world. Before we do jump into the episode today, I wanted to quickly chat with you about today's topic, animal welfare. Although this podcast is heavily focused on nutrition, I do think it's important to also be conscious of how our food choices impact others. And that includes planetary health and the health and happiness of all sentient beings that we share the planet with. At its core, veganism is an ideology that people adopt to reduce, not completely eliminate as that's impossible, but to reduce exploitation and all forms of harm to other sentient beings. Part of this means eliminating animal products from one's diet. And and then there are other lifestyle changes like not buying leather shoes or jackets. It is the opposite of carnism, which is the dominant ideology in our culture. And it is this deeply rooted culture of carnism that accepts some animals as food, for example, cows, while others are pets, for example, dogs. While most of us recognize veganism as an ideology, carnism is far more widespread and dominant, but at the same time is somewhat invisible. It is why we will wear a cow skin as our jacket or shoes 
eat the flesh of a sheep, but will put someone in prison for kicking a dog. Friends, I completely understand today's episode and this topic of animal welfare is often a little uncomfortable. I totally get that. And perhaps you have a stereotypical view of an animal activist being angry, weird, or even violent. I know I used to. Today's guest, animal activist Seb Alex, is anything but that. And I really urge all of you, vegan or not, to listen to this conversation with an open mind. Even if you're not interested in veganism, it's interesting to listen to what people from different walks of life have to say, how they see the world. Ten years ago, if I came across this podcast, I would probably keep scrolling. In fact, I definitely would have. I often think about my early university days and, and why I never stopped to think about eating animal products. I grew up loving dogs and farm animals, but I never once fully appreciated the connection between my food plate with an animal's life and, and how my consumption affected their happiness and their journey. The, the odd thing is I look back on myself a decade ago and I see the same person. The values and beliefs were there, but I was closed. I was not in a place to allow new ideas to challenge the way I had been programmed. Now that I better understand the power of, of opening our mind, I, I have discussions with people all the time who, who see things differently to me. Not just about nutrition, but all things in life. I can, I can escape the echo chamber that we so often comfortably find ourselves in. A place where there is the natural tendency to only surround yourself with people who share your thoughts. And I always walk away from these conversations happy that they give me the opportunity to challenge my beliefs and and think a little deeper. Happy they give me an opportunity to learn something new. It's these types of conversations that allow our minds to expand. You, You may find today's message resonates with you. You may find it takes you to places in your mind that you've never visited. You may find it doesn't. The point is, you will be better informed with regards to how an animal activist sees the world. You will better understand their perspective. And then with that, you can do what you want. If this episode isn't for you right now, that's completely fine. Jump over to any number of previous episodes on nutrition and come back to this one when it feels right. Before we do get into it and and hear from Seb, I'm really hoping this conversation does not further divide our community. If we are to progress as a species, we, we need to come together and accept that nobody is perfect in order to create solutions that shift the needle. There really has never been a more important time in human history to come together and live in harmony with each other, with the soil, with our entire planet 
and with other sentient beings. You only have to look at what's happening to our climate, the fires in Australia and destruction of the Great Barrier Reef, for example, the incredible amounts of deforestation taking place to create room for more animal agriculture and the public health burden to realise that we can all do better. This conversation isn't just about the animals and the associated benefits of living a vegan lifestyle. It's about being conscious of our decisions and taking your mind to a place that allows for expansion. And with that, I welcome Seb Alex. Friends, I'll see you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Seb Alex, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you. Man, it's a, it's a real pleasure to, to have you on the show. I've, I've watched you from afar. I think we are connected probably a year ago now. Yeah. We, were, we were chatting and, and I've definitely watched from afar and, and really admire the way that you go about your activism mm-hmm. and your ability to, to maintain a, 
a, a calm approach and an approach with compassion, which obviously is very much central to to what your message is about. However, we can't ignore the fact that there there is a bit of a stigma associated with activism and aggressiveness. So it's it's been really nice to to watch you and, and look at your strategy and you know very very much being excited to get you onto the show and to to learn about your story and to learn about why this is so important to you. What's neat about this is that this conversation has come about rather organically. I mean, we <laughs> we just randomly bumped into each other at a restaurant in, in Indonesia the other night, Omajamu. Yeah. Is that a bre- <laughs> Yeah, it's a great restaurant, isn't it? Is that somewhere that you go a bit? Yeah, I actually love going there because of the amount of whole foods that they have on the menu and how cheap it is compared to other vegan restaurants. So whenever I'm really hungry and I don't want to spend a lot of money, I just go to Omajamu. <laughs> yeah, and we're talking, I mean, it's great food and, and you're right, like price-wise, they're loading up a plate yeah. of everything that you can think of and more. Tempeh, there's tofu, there's every, you know, t- different types of potatoes, there's salads, lentils, there's lentils, chickpeas, it's rice, there's everything. And it's like $5 maximum, something like less. that, less than that. Yeah, yeah it's like $3.50 US <laughs> dollars, yeah. like $5 Australian. It's exactly. super, super cheap and it's, it's, it's just full of flavor. Um, somewhere I go, I go quite a bit. Where, where else do you like to eat around here? I love Give, mentioned earlier, because they have this bomb smoothie bowl. They, they like the Berry Bright, I think it's called. Uh, it's really good. And other than that, I really enjoy the local restaurants. The only problem is that the local food, the vegan version of local food is very deep fried. Like they just fry everything. But yeah, there was, um, there's the Living Food Lab. I don't know if you've been there. Haven't been, but it's I, really I've good. heard it's good. Yeah, it's actually really nice. Uh, if you want, if you're gonna work, like I could, I've spent a whole day over there. You know, just breakfast, lunch, dinner, just working so upstairs. That's in Changu or Brava. Brava, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's so many options here. Like, <laughs> I always post every time I come here. I get asked by everyone about what are the best places to go to, and I always, I always post quite a big long list. Yeah. So I might have to pick your brain now that you're based here and see if there's any that I need to add to that. I mean, there's the Italian place that I'm going to check out. Yeah, Amami. I haven't been there, but I've heard great things. Yeah, yeah I was there um, actually a month ago, I think. It's really good. It's just like, you just wouldn't expect the food that you're going to, like, you know, you're going to get something good, but then they bring you the food and you're like, oh, okay, this is next level. <laughs> the, 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 the crazy thing is, it, it, I mean, particularly in this area where we are now, the most popular restaurants are, vegan yeah. restaurants yeah. um it's not necessarily full of vegans sitting in there it's everyone sitting in yeah there, definitely they are you know by and large the most have you been to kind yeah i've been to kind in, yeah. in, in kind uh, Seminyak. that's huge always full and like people of all backgrounds and like pretty sure like 90 percent of their clients aren't like fully vegan um so it's really great to see all these restaurants mm. bringing in like a whole new crowd to it if you're if you're vegan and you're into traveling you definitely have to come to to this part of yeah. the world. It's it's heaven. <laughs> it is. I mean the the amount, like the variety of food they have, and then the it's like what's really interesting for me is not only the the price that you're getting it for, but it's also the quality. Like it's really healthy food. You know, like the amount of fruits that you have here. It's just I don't know. Like having like a coconut for less than a dollar, <laughs> just because you can. 
and the dragon fruit, the mangoes, you know, the, the, the flavors are so strong and, um, yeah, definitely feeling much better when I'm here than anywhere else, to be honest. Hey, so tell me, this is, this is a question, um, that I think is very interesting. I'm sure listeners will. You're, you're an animal activist. You're very big on, on ethics Mm -hmm. and, my question for you around these restaurants is do you do you only go and eat at vegan restaurants or or would you also go and eat at a restaurant that you know is serving meat yeah. but has vegan options where do you sit All right. you know with that one so um personally i i try to only go to fully vegan restaurants when i have when i have the option and i can afford it so i say i can afford it cuz sometimes i'm not in indonesia so and i i think this this can apply for everyone as well so the way the I come from the perspective of if you have the chance to support a fully vegan ethical business, why would you not, you know? And I'm completely aware that in some places people don't have the option. So I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about those who have the availability and can afford going to a vegan restaurant. You know, if it's not overpriced or something, why not? It's, it's amazing. You know, like these are restaurants that for us show how the future is going to be. You know, why would you not want to put a higher demand for those places? Um, the way I see it uh, with other restaurants, whether it's um, like with meat or chicken or whatever, or vegetarian even, I would only go there if I don't have the option to go to a vegan restaurant. Because for me, if they're serving cow meat, let's say, it's the same as them serving dog meat. And if I'm not going to feel comfortable sitting down in a restaurant that serves dog meat, why would I sit in a restaurant that serves cow meat? You know. Now, not only do I think it's really great to support these businesses. It's also when you have friends, you know, even if they're not vegan, it's great to bring them to a vegan restaurant just because Mm. it normalizes veganism so much more. And plus that meal they're going to have with you, they're not going to be eating animals because they're not in another restaurant. They're at a vegan restaurant. And they're also going to see the amount of people in the vegan restaurant, the differences, you know, it kind of like breaks the stereotype they might have about veganism Mm. in their head. And you're bringing them into like a surrounding that is fully vegan. So I think, like in my personal opinion, we should always support fully, uh, like fully ethical vegan businesses rather vegan options in a non-ethical business. I I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. And actually, opened a, a vegan restaurant in Bondi mm-hmm. probably four or five months ago. And yeah. the, and the the great thing is, ninety percent of people coming in are not vegan. Yeah, and they're having the best time. Yeah. and. They, you know, they they come in and they might be slightly skeptical. And by the time they've left, they're thinking about when they're going to come back. Yeah. But I'm sure that there is a is a sort of counter argument to what you're mm-hmm. saying. And and certainly I, I'm I'm thinking that people may may be thinking if you support the vegan options on a non-vegan restaurant, that may then give the restaurant owner more reason to add more vegan food yeah. onto the menu. What do you think about that? So I actually used to come from that point of view. I actually believed in that and um, talked about that as well. Until I realized there has been studies done and it turns out that the vegan population is so small. I mean, less than three or two, 2% of the population that no restaurant or no business would make a product for, for us. It just like no one would do that. That's like the worst business decision you would ever make, you know, making a product for less than 2% of the population. That's not going to work. The main clients of vegan options, you know, 
are the flexitarians, are the vegetarians, are the vegan interested, are the health interested people. So a restaurant would never be really affected by vegans not going there because we're not like 50% of population. You know, our numbers are not that big to actually have an impact. And when I realized that, and I saw like the, the studies that were made and the amount of restaurants they ask. And in even fully vegan restaurants were like, no, the majority of our customers are not vegan just because there's not that many vegans in the world, That's you know? I just said, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So ethically speaking, I feel much more comfortable going to a vegan restaurant. I also feel the emotional support that you bring to a vegan uh, business is much more important than what you're going to bring to a non-vegan place that literally doesn't rely on you. If tomorrow all non-vegans woke up and said, we're not going to buy vegan-only options anymore, that's when they will remove these items off the menu. Not when the vegans don't mm. do that, you know? And don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not saying this has to be done by literally everyone. Like, if you go vegan tomorrow, you're not allowed to go to a non-vegan restaurant. That's not what I'm saying. Take your time. Um, sometimes you might be in situations where you don't have another option. That's completely fine, you know? Like, it, you're not going to be perfect. No, no one is perfect. So... If you feel comfortable, try to try to do your best to support vegan restaurants, support vegan businesses. And if you don't have the option or that day, it's not going to work out. That's completely fine. So tell me, what, what about the, the sort of larger organizations we've seen recently? You know, some of the big burger <laughs> chains um, across the yeah. world. I think it's, I think Burger King, which is Hungry Jacks in Australia. Did you know that? It's like, ah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. They Same told me thing, that when I was there. Yeah, yeah. These guys are are adding the the beyond or the impossible impossible burger, burger yeah. yeah the impossible burger onto their menu, um, which we need to talk about separately in terms <laughs> of is it vegan or not, which yeah, I yeah. believe it's not. Yeah. But I mean these these are powerful companies, right? And and what do you think about supporting these companies in terms of they're adding a a plant based burger, yeah. To their, to their menu that can reach millions and millions and millions of people. Mm-hmm. Do you see any positive in that in terms of this movement? Yeah, definitely. I see a huge positive, but I also see a huge negative. Um, the huge positive is the following. A, a company like Burger King or KFC or McDonald's putting a vegan burger when just like five years ago, they used to make fun of vegans in their advertisements. Like I remember seeing this advertisement, I think it was McDonald's. They put a the... The, I don't, what was the normal McDonald's burger called? Mac something. The Big Mac. The Big Mac, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it was a picture of the Big Mac and then next to it, they just wrote a soy burger would never be this juicy. You know, they used to make fun of vegans. Now they're adding that. And the big positive is that when huge corporations like these restaurants use vegan items and start spending money on advertising them, it normalizes veganism. Suddenly you have the, like the usual troll on Instagram who just comments bacon on your stuff, walking into McDonald's and seeing McDonald's saying, try our vegan burger, you know, it normalizes veganism so much, which is a huge thing for us. We really need to normalize veganism more and more. So that's a huge thing. Another reason is because suddenly, you know, there's people who really go to these places because they can't afford healthy food. You know, I'd much rather have them eat plant-based food if like it's it's still a bit unhealthy you know it's still junk food but if you're gonna if your financial like situation doesn't allow you to buy whole foods to to go to more healthy restaurants and you're gonna go to these places i'd much rather have you eat a plant-based burger i mean that's an important point in itself yeah quite often the the plant-based movement you you know i know i see it all the time it's something i think about about you know privilege yeah and, and and being conscious of lower socioeconomic status yeah uh, population definitely 
um, considering that, you know, sometimes their food choice is, is more limited. Definitely. Yeah. There's, I mean, um, I've never been in a environment like that, but I think they call them the food deserts in the States. I think they have it. Do you have, do you have it in Australia as well? Or I'm not? sure there are, I'm sure there are, yeah. there yeah. are parts of the country, but probably not yeah. as widespread as the States. As the States. Yeah. So there they have like, I think a lot of times, like in black communities, you know, they live in areas where they don't really have access to the foods that we have access to. And if you can make decisions and think about what you can do to change where your food comes from, that is a privilege. That's a fact, you know? I wouldn't say that's going to hold back a lot of people because even in those communities, you see a lot of vegans just because they are more aware of justice and how oppression is wrong. So they understand ethical veganism much better, much easier, let's say. But we do have to take that into consideration. And um, I think it's very important to you know, when you're talking to someone and I used to do this as well, when someone said like, I can't afford to go vegan. And I used to go like, well, what's cheaper than rice and beans, you know? And that's true. What's cheaper than rice and beans? That's really cheap. But that's quite ignorant because first of all, you have to acknowledge the fact that someone is sharing their financial situation with you. That's really personal. Most people wouldn't even share that with their family members or their partners or their friends. So you really have to, first of all, respect that they share that with you and then ask where they're from if they are comfortable sharing that information with you. And then maybe you can ask your surrounding if you have any vegan friends who come from that area and then you can put them in touch you know like hey this person i found out they just like live in the area they're vegan as well they love to help you out you know if someone shares vulnerable information with you that's stopping them from going vegan or thinking about veganism i think that's really really powerful and you should respect that and help them if they want to go vegan if they're still interested find out where the information is you know where the cheap food is where the healthy food is and everything else we were were talking about the the dumpster dumpster diving dumpster diving yeah you know yesterday yeah so yeah there's a lot of people who would just like go to supermarkets when they close on or even restaurants you know and they throw out so much food so much food that could feed like thousands of people and yeah some people go dumpster diving so they open the dumpsters and they they take out the food and everything and they just eat that and this doesn't have to be someone who's struggling financially because it's also a sustainability thing. You know, if you have so much food being thrown away, why not like recycle it? Let's say, I think it's really great. The problem with that is that not everyone can do it. Mm. Not only because they don't feel like it, but also there's a limited amount of places you can go for dumpster diving because a lot of corporations, when they, first of all, the area where they throw away the food is completely locked. So no one can access it. In some places, like I've done it, um, I think it was in Barcelona, in some places when they throw it, they also put some waste on it so that no one can use it because it has happened apparently that um, someone got poisoned and they sued the company and the company is like, well, we're not going to risk it anymore. So we're just going to ruin the food so no one can recycle it, you know? So from an ethical perspective, where do you sit on dumpster diving and consuming animal products? Yeah, I would... um, Definitely not consider it um, as a vegan thing, just because as a vegan, you wouldn't accept the body parts of an animal as food. I have to admit, though, it is in some cases more environmental friendly, just because you're not creating more demand for more food to be produced. That's a fact. But then again, we can't really advocate for that because it's, it's quite an impossible thing to ask the human population to do or even a society. You know, A lot of people have to eat and consume for you to have dumpster diving availability, you know? So you can't really apply that to the, to the society. And um, 
to your surrounding. You know, you can't just start advocating for dumpster diving. It's at some point it's going to stop. You know, it's, there's a limit to it. I would never feel comfortable eating that food, honestly, just because I don't, I don't see an animal body parts as food anymore. I'd feel extremely uncomfortable, but also because I have the privilege to think that's not healthy for me. So I'm going to eat something else. Yeah. Back to the hungry jacks. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've, we've jumped off. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Come back. So you were talking through, you were talking through some of the benefits. Yeah. What's, what's the sort of overarching main you know, negative? Yeah. So the negative part is that, first of all, they're using veganism for, for, for their interests. They're, they're not doing it because they care about animals. They're doing it because they see a demand in plant-based foods, which, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. But at the same time, we have to think about how this is affecting the company. So I believe, just like I said earlier, if, if you're vegan and you care about the ethics and everything, try your best not to support these companies. And the reason why I say that is because, for example, when you take Burger King, they introduced the Impossible Burger. The CEO of Burger King, he made a statement and he said that where their sales just went up like crazy overnight. But it's not only that. He said, we are not seeing our customers change their usual order. We're just seeing new customers popping up. And therefore, we are selling more than more of everything. But also their sales of the Burger King Whopper, the meat-based burger, also went up. And that's really bad because now that they introduce a plant-based burger, they're suddenly killing more animals. Because their friends are now coming. Exactly. As a because the vegans are coming and going like, and now we can go to Burger King, you know, and they go there with their friends. They're, they're vegan. So they take the plant-based burger and then their friends just order the, the, the normal whopper. And then you have more animals dying. Sudden, suddenly it's a place that more groups of friends can now go to. Exactly. And then the company makes more money and more animals also die as a result. So we do have to be very careful. And I repeat this, like, it's so important to keep this in mind. If you're a vegan and you don't go there, it's not going to affect the item being on the menu. I'm actually working on a kind of a questionnaire to send out to McDonald's and Burger King to ask them feedback about this because I do want to have it like kind of coming from them as well. Maybe they'll share more information with me as well. But we have to keep in mind, like for every vegan that doesn't eat a plant-based burger at Burger King, there is like, I don't know, probably 500 non-vegans buying it. You know, it's not made for us. And even the McDonald's, before they put out their own burger, there was, a, there was an interview with the CEO and the CEO said, the reason why we haven't done it yet is because we don't know who our target customer is. You know, they didn't know. They don't know who the target customer is. It's because it's not vegans. They want to know which population is buying this. I'm definitely not advocating for these items not to be on the menu. I want it to be there. I want it to normalize veganism. I want it to be a less unhealthy option for people who can't afford something else. But I also want vegans to be aware that them going and buying is not going to bring animal liberation. And, and that's not an opinion. That's just, just the facts. You know, the CEO of these companies are admitting themselves. The impossible burger itself, right? That's That's been rather contentious yeah. as to whether it's a, it's actually is a <laughs> vegan product that vegans should buy yeah. right so run me through the background on the impossible yeah. burger and where you sit personally all right so the impossible burger is a burger that is made out of plants and um, it's basically a burger to mimic the taste and texture and smell of meat and it's obviously like seen as a meat alternative but the problem is they went out of their way to do an unnecessary animal testing. They tested on, on the rats and then they killed the rats. So 
as we all know, veganism is a way of living that excludes using and abusing and exploiting animals as far as practically possible. So animal testing is not vegan. Impossible Burger itself said our burgers are not vegan. They're plant-based. Yes, because there has been people mess- like messaging them and Impossible Burger openly admits our burger is not vegan. The vegan society made a statement saying Impossible Burger doesn't have the characteristics to get the vegan label on it. It's not a vegan burger. So when you have the big, like the vegan society and the Impossible Burger themselves saying that this is not a vegan burger, because it's tested on animals unnecessarily, then why are we calling it vegan? You know, does it save more lives on the long term? Definitely does, you know, but is it a vegan product? It's not just the same way that if a makeup company tomorrow replaces their, let's say sometimes they use um, like they crush bugs to make the color for makeup. They stop crushing bugs. Okay. So it's, it's no longer with animal products but they still test on animals. We're not going to claim it's a vegan product. It's still a non-vegan product. It just doesn't have, like, it just experiments instead of experimenting and having animal ingredients. There are so many products out there that test on animals, but don't have animal ingredients. Does that mean they're all vegan? None of them are. So just as an extension of the definition of veganism, the Impossible Burger is as non-vegan as any other product that is tested on animals. And yeah, my my point, my personal stance is I would never buy that product just because I don't see why I would when I have the option not to. If you're new to veganism, you're just still, let's say you're surrounded, like you're a teenager or whatever, you're surrounded by non-vegans and you you were uncomfortable in a position and you're not really used to it yet. There's a lot of pressure and everything. And you ended up buying the burger, you know, I'm not going to make you the devil of the world. You know, like I wish you do not, you don't have to do that. But it's also not going to be the end of the world if you do it, because it is a fact that the test is over and done, you know? So yeah, personally, I just wish these companies would stick to a vegan burger, you know? And, and the, the, just be ethical yeah. the whole way through. Yeah. The, the animal testing, it's an, it's an interesting one, because like you said, a lot of brands and products could be doing it. But mm-hmm. if you just read the label and see that it's free of animal ingredients, right? But there's no sort of vegan society yeah. logo or anything on it, how how can someone actually know whether that brand has exactly. tested on animals? You can just Google it. Like most of the companies, you're going to find the information online. PETA has a huge list of all the um, companies that have that are vegan friendly, that are not vegan friendly, and that have uh, refused to give information. For me, if a company says, we're not going to tell you, I'm not going to buy from them because why would you, why would you say that if you're vegan? But for example, L'Oreal, which is like a makeup company, recently I saw a photo of them advertising one of their products. It had the word vegan on it, not a label. So they didn't have to pay any company to do the checks for them. It Just because it doesn't have any animal ingredients, they put it as, they literally wrote vegan on their product. And it's like, no, you test on animals. You're not a vegan company. You know, you, and that's, that's misleading customers on what your company is and what they do. So... If, if you are concerned about animals and you're against animal testing and you're not sure of a product, just take out your phone, write down like, I don't know, does Adidas test on animals? As simple as that. And you're going to find so much information on the subject. And is it going to take five more minutes until you finish your shopping? Yes. Mm. But you do it once and then you're good forever. <laughs> you mentioned before 
defining veganism, you've spoken about speciesism. I think maybe from the from the outset here, let's define a few of these terms in case yeah. anyone is sort of new to this right. language. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of this lingo. lingo. So let's define vegan. Let's define sentient being and speciesism. Yeah. So veganism is basically a philosophy, a way of life, or uh, let's say a political stance against the exploitation of other animals based on their species, as far as practically possible, of course. Now you get the word species, so speciesism is basically the practice of treating a certain species in a different way, in this case, in, in worse ways or with no respect, because of the fact that they're from a certain species. So it's type of a discrimination. So like we, we love dogs. Exactly. But we eat cows. Exactly. So that's that's a perfect example of uh, speciesism. But even in that, let's say, you know, some people who love dogs, when they want to do fireworks that result in a lot of dogs and cats suffering or even having heart attacks and dying, at that point, they put their pleasure first. So that's also a type of speciesism because you want, you're more concerned about you having fun than the life of another being. What's that? Fireworks? Fireworks, yeah. I didn't know this until a few years ago. Talk to me about that. It's I've really, never heard that before. It's, you know, I, I grew up in Lebanon. So fireworks in Lebanon is like birthday, fireworks. Finish your exam, fireworks. There's no like laws around it. You do whatever you want. And um, turns out fireworks cause in, like an unimaginable amount of anxiety in animals. But not only like animals that we have at home, but also wildlife. I'm just talking about dogs now because we brought it up, but there are so many examples. I mean, just in the UK a few weeks ago, there was, I don't know what holiday it was, so everyone was doing fireworks, I think. I saw a picture. It was just a picture of two hands with dirt on it. And the caption said, I just had to bury my cat who had a heart attack after being so anxious during the fireworks. Please stop this. You know, there's videos where you see dogs just running around. Like it just scares them. crazy. Because imagine how... They don't understand what's happening. I mean, you can see if, if anyone has had a dog before and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's fireworks or even like thunder and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff, they freak out. Dogs do freak out. Yeah, and they're, they're much more sensitive as well, you know, like just, I mean, just the, the simple explosion of the firework really is too much for them. So imagine being in a huge city with everyone doing fireworks. It's the worst thing that like, not the worst thing, but like it's quite a horrible thing for them to go through and... And yeah, I've 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 argued with uh, even vegans who at at the moment of it they're like ah oh, it's just once a year and this and that and I'm like dude I know it's fun I know I know it's once a year but you're literally causing unnecessary suffering on a sentient being that you claim you love how do you justify that you know sentient so, yeah. being sentient being yeah it's basically um, I don't know that like dictionary definition, but a being that like an animal that is completely aware of their surrounding and they're aware of their own experience of life. And they also are sentient. So they have sentience. That means they can feel as well. So a being that experiences pain and, and suffering and joy and, every, and excitement and everything else. And that would be different, but that, that is a difference between an animal or an insect and a plant. Yeah, there, there's definitely different levels of sentience. Definitely. That's why, let's say, we would feel less bad if we accidentally step on, a, on an ant than accidentally step on a lizard or your dog's paw or something, you know, because you there's definitely like, now I'm just giving any random animals, but there's definitely a different level of sentience mm-hmm. in different animals. Who... who who comes up with that? 
that sort of value value chain, so to speak. <laughs> science, yeah. It's basically they they check they check the the nervous system and the capacity of the brain because you, you definitely need a, a nervous system and a brain to have sentience, which could bring us to another subject of when people say, "Oh, but plants have feelings," you know. Plants have intelligence, but they don't have feelings because they don't have a brain and a nervous system for them to have sentience. That's why they're not sentient beings. That's why they're not considered an animal. They're a plant. They definitely have intelligence. Like some, like there was this study that came out and it was going viral on Facebook with people sharing it. Ah, see, you vegans are hypocrites because plants have feelings. And it turns out because the study said that the, the plant could react to stimuli, you know? Yeah, but like my iPhone reacts to similar. You know, I, I touch it, it turns on. You know, I pick it up, it turns on. It doesn't make it a sentient being. It just has an intelligence, but it lacks the characteristics to be qualified as a sentient being. Where do you sit with oysters in terms of this conversation? Yeah, still animals. That's an interesting yeah, one. It is. It is still animals, still sentient beings. They have a micro nervous system. So, and like, I'm not a scientist. I can't give all the explanation behind it, but I have looked into it myself because I was interested. And yeah, they're still animals. They're the reason why they're not considered plants. They do have like, their sentience is like much less than other animals, obviously. But I, you literally have no need of consuming oysters and other animal products. So just don't do it. <laughs> Leave them in the ocean. So why do you think it is that you know, in many parts of the world, species exist and we see dogs and cats and we see them as pets mm-hmm. yet we can walk into a grocery store and we 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 see meat as food why, yeah why does that exist why is that normal brainwashing in my opinion like pure brainwashing and nothing else um you you bring up someone in society that sees certain animals in a way and certain other animals in another way that that's the reality and you're never going to question your reality like I had never questioned, let's say, like animal products and where they come from or whether or not I should do it just the same way. I never questioned if white is the color that I see when someone says white. Like that's that's my reality. That's what white, that's what the sky is, you know. You're never gonna question these things. And that's why I think a lot of people get very offended when you bring up veganism because you're kind of asking them question to question something quite personal. Not only that, but as a result, the questioning what you're eating also extends to questioning what your parents have taught you, questioning what your teachers have taught you, questioning your habits, you know, your your what gives you pleasure. And these are very personal things, you know. If if someone's um parents, like like all of us actually, they 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 told you like meat is good, you need this, you need milk and that. And then someone else that you don't even know comes up to you and says, actually, that's completely wrong. It's actually very unhealthy and it's extremely cruel and unnecessary. Why would you believe them at first go? You know, you're going to go like, whoa. You're going to take that very personally. Yeah, of course. Like, who are you to tell me what my parents told me is good for me is actually bad for me? That's quite a personal thing to to tell someone. Like, you don't approach with that, but they definitely have these thoughts in their hands. So, um, we are brought up in a society that treats certain animals in some way and certain others in another way, but it is a fact but literally, that literally all of them are victims of speciesism, including cats and dogs, because we buy cats and dogs, we breed cats and dogs, we take them, we, we consider them as here to please us, here to be in our company, to keep us happy, to take care of us or whatever. 
So it's really important to keep in mind that just because we love dogs and cats in most countries doesn't mean they're not victims of speciesism. Actually, a lot of them are. Their domestication is actually one of the first things that that kind of start, like could be considered speciesism as well. You know, um, the like some of the dogs that exist today, like the different breeds, you know, that they mix together and everything. It's 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 a very pure um, aspect of speciesism. And the fact that we put them in little cages in stores for a parent to walk in with their kid and say, which one do you want and buy a life? That's speciesism as well. But we don't end up sending them to a slaughterhouse, you know? So we kind of forget that part. Like, oh, no, no, that's completely fine. We don't do that with these animals. We do it with the others. So it's really about how you've been brought up and what you've been told is the truth and what's best for you. And that, like, this is the way it is. You know, you're not allowed to question it. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So you, you've 
quite clearly devoted your your life to this cause, right? Mm-hmm. You 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 know, it's this is your your waking hours are spent towards defending these animals and and very much being a voice for these animals. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think from the outside, I think most people would would think that this vegan movement is gaining pace. But I saw you post something recently that I found very interesting and you were talking to other animal activists about the data on on, on meat consumption and that it was yeah. actually rising. Yeah. Talk me through this and, and talk me through that message that you were conveying. All right. So basically, um, yeah, I think that was two days ago. Um, I've realized recently that in the animal rights movement and me included, we tend to always share the good news, you know, more vegan options, huge activism events, more rescues and this and that. We're happy. More activists than ever. We're happy, which is great. But we are failing in sharing the bad news. And I think that's extremely dangerous because it kind of gives us the feeling that we're winning when we're not. And the reason I say we're not is not because we're not, let's say, like we're not failing, but we are losing to developing countries. We are losing to population growth. For example, when it comes to China and India and Brazil and Argentina, all developing countries, the more money they have, the more their population grows, the more they start adapting Western diets, the more they start eating bacon and eggs for breakfast. You know, it just becomes like, it is at the end of the day, like if you look at it worldwide, eating animal products is a privilege. It's something that most people can't afford because it it demands so many, so much resources to make animal products that only those who can afford to waste so much resources would buy animal products. So we are, unfortunately, as the vegan movement grows, we are seeing the growth of the demand of animal-based products, most of it because of these countries. And the reason why I was sharing this is because I want activists to always read about what's happening in the animal agriculture industry. For example, I've been at slaughterhouses in Australia. I've talked to slaughterhouse owners. The first one I went to told me 70% of the animals they slaughter are sent uh, abroad because the the demand in Australia is going down. The second one, 100% of the animals they slaughter, they ship them to other countries. A lot of that's going to China. Exactly. And, you know, it's good. It's good that the demand in Australia is going down. That's great. But the animals are still getting killed. They're just being shipped somewhere else, you know? So that's something we should talk about. How could we, how could we have, like, how could we plan something that could impact that as well? Maybe it might be through politics, you know, it might be through sustainability, let's say, you know, why ship all the way there? It's not good for the environment and environment is something all of us share. So it's not like, Oh, we do it and then someone else pays the price, you know, which by the way, that doesn't justify either. But even if you want to be selfish, you have to take that into consideration. So something that's been happening recently is the African swine fever in China, which uh, has taken over farms. So they are getting rid of like a lot of animals, like millions, especially pigs. So out of nowhere, um, the UK is now exporting meat uh, to China, like pig-based products. So pork in general, pig legs and things like that. Uh, Ireland is about to, like within the next one year, their export of animal-based products, beef actually, is going to be tenfold within one year. They're going to send 10 times more animal products all the way to China. 
So all these companies are, are now like, all right, China needs more animals now because their animals are sick. So we're going to like start breeding more animals and kill animals and ship them all the way there because it brings us money. But when activists don't share these things, then we're failing the animals. It's not fair. You know, it's not fair that we only share the good news because not only is it not realistic, it's also not good for our strategy. You know, you don't go to a war thinking that you've won when you're actually already losing. You know, you're definitely going to lose if you go that way, you know. No, stay back. Look what the enemy is doing. You know, look at what their plans are. Have a strategy and then go to the battle. It's just much, much smarter, you know. So I wanted to bring that subject and I want people, actually, I received a lot of messages of people saying, hey, like, I had never thought about this. Thank you for letting me know. I'm going to look into it. Some people started sending me other websites they can use, you know, and and sharing the stories mm-hmm. on their stories as well, saying like, hey, check this out. This is really important. And yeah, but this applies to any other justice moment as well, not only to veganism. Do you think that part of this, you know, sort of almost like an echo chamber of surrounding yourself with good news? Yeah. I see being an animal activist as a very, it can be, would be a, a very frustrating life to live sometimes and very mentally straining, right? And, and, and focusing on the success may make it somewhat easier to, yeah. to stay active and of stay course. passionate, right? Yeah. Is that, you know, part of it, why you think people are, are, are not so much 100%. on the developing countries? A hundred percent. It's because it can really burn you out. Like every week I do this um, YouTube video called Vegan News, where I share the good news, the bad news, and like the weird or funny news from the animal agriculture industry or the vegan movement. I start with the good news and then I switch to the bad news and I always add something in the end to, you know, <laughs> so make people get depressed by the end. Try and lighten it up. Yeah, exactly. And every single Friday morning when I sit down and I start reading the news, it destroys me. You know, like just like two weeks ago was one of the worst weeks. You know, Malaysia deciding to build their biggest dairy farm to double their production of dairy. Like I think it was like 50 million liters in two years or something. And then Brazil exporting more beef than ever to China, Ireland making this deal, UK sending also meat products to China, and then Brazil having a new deal with Saudi Arabia. And then uh, this week in Romania, this live export ship drowned. I don't know if you saw with 14,000 sheep on them that drowned to death. And then the few that were rescued were taken to a slaughterhouse. Like, I start reading all of this and I'm like, no wonder no one wants to talk about this. You know, it's so, it's so bad. We're talking about lives here. We're talking about innocent animals getting slaughtered for unnecessary reasons. And obviously it has a negative impact on us, but still we would be much happier if our activism had a better impact. So if you can't take it all, instead of reading half an hour, of news of the animal agriculture industry, read for 15 minutes, you know? But every other person who reads 15 minutes, that's that's good enough. We should know what ha- what's happening on the other side. It would, be, it would be similar to like, let's say, if you are fighting, like, I'm, I'm not going to like compare victims or anything, nor types of oppression, but let's say if you're fighting for civil rights, let's say, okay? And then on the other hand, the politicians are making up new laws against the people that you're fighting for, you know, like um, for their uh, liberation. Would you not share the new laws that they're making up just so you go like, guys, like we have to work on this one as well. They just passed. So you would definitely share that because you need to know what you're fighting against. So I see this the same way, you know, 
It's amazing that there's so many vegans, that there's so many activists nowadays. However, we have to know what we're fighting against, you know, changing individual consumer habits is amazing, but we need to grow bigger than that. So from a global perspective, yeah. do you feel like this is a battle that you're winning or you're losing? Um, so number-wise, we're losing for sure because more animals are getting killed every single year than the year before. Strategy-wise or prediction-wise, I think there's a big chance of, of mostly winning because although these developing countries are consuming more animal products because they're developing countries, they the reason they do that is because they look up they look up to the West, let's say, or the really mm, like they're following the trends and exactly, status exactly. So if we concentrate on making this that status vegan. That's what they're going to adapt. So for example, recently, you know, every single week, there's more deals being done with China. And it got to a point where it's like, now it's time. We're going to talk about China again. And then last week, I was like, we're going to talk about China again, but this time it's good news. And it turns out there's a plant-based company. I forgot what it was called, but they make like basically vegan pork products, like vegan bacon or whatever. And they're selling more than ever. And they're uh, also starting to serve in more than 180 restaurants in China because of the fact that their pig farms are like not working anymore, you know? So because of the African swine fever, not only are they importing from European countries, let's say, but they're also a rise in vegan products, which is good. You know, we have to acknowledge that. So we have to think what we can do to make the that status a vegan status for them to look up to that and go like, all right, if we're going to mimic them, we're going to take veganism. And unfortunately, in some of these countries, veganism was their past. So it's not like they're, we're not giving anyone veganism. They're just going back to their roots. That's what it is. And in some ways that should make it easier because they've Definitely. had that connection Definitely. before, you know? Yeah. What about you personally? You, you talk about, we're talking sort of about mental health and mm -hmm. being an activist and being able to to maintain some sense of positivity to be able to continue yeah, and to be a leader and to be a voice. What's your journey been like over the years with your own mental health? It's weird because I can say that I have never been so bad in my life, but I have also never been so strong in my life. <laughs> um, I'll explain. Bad because... You witness things you think no one would ever do. You know, like I'm, I've been inside slaughterhouses, on the kill floors. I've been inside farms. Like I walk out of these places and I'm like, how the hell did we even get here? You know, like I, what did I just witness? Like, why would anyone pay for this? And the reason, the reason why it destroys me is not only what I'm seeing. It's mostly, and I think this could be true for most vegans. It's the fact that when you go and tell that to someone and they go like, no, I don't want to change. That's what destroys you. Because like when I talk to someone, it's because I think highly of them. You know, I think when they find out this information, they're going to go like, wow, you know, I had no idea that this is so unnecessary. I will stop contributing to this. That's what I expect from someone to say. So when they don't say it, I really get frustrated. Like, why would you want to continue doing this? Like you, you saw, you've seen the videos, you know, you've seen what happened to animals. So, and most people love animals. That's the thing. Like it's weird because we're trying to convince 
people who love animals not to unnecessarily kill animals. And that's a frustrating thing to do. So at the same time, I can also say I've never been so strong because I could never imagine that I could witness slaughter of an innocent animal and walk out and start activism. I, I would never think of that. Like from my past, let's say, I could never imagine that I could be that person. Not only that, I used to be quite anxious, quite shy, let's say, talking in class or being in a group group of people. Now, obviously, by the way, this like I'm not saying you do this, your anxiety is going to go away. I'm not saying that. But for example, this year I gave speeches in universities and schools to like, I think the biggest one was 220 students. And I, I could never imagine that I would ever have the courage to do something like that. But the suffering of the animals has kind of become my fuel, my motivation. It's strength. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird because it's something so horrible. You know, you'd never think that that's going to be your fuel. But you see that and then you think, of course, I'm going to do that. Of course, I'm not going to shut up about this. You know, of course, I'm not going to let the peer pressure get like a hold of me. So it's ups and downs, of course, but it's also very important to be aware of where you are mentally because we have to keep in mind that just because the animals have it so badly doesn't mean that you should also have it so badly and, and doesn't mean that your struggles are invalid, let's say, just because the animals suffer more. No, that's not the case. The animals actually need us at our best. You know, the animals need me to be healthy, to be to be feeling good, to be sleeping well. So for me to do that, if I have to break, I have to take a break every once in a while, I should. And I say this to everyone, you know, sometimes there's this attitude of um, the animals don't get a break, so neither will I. Well, how long are you going to do activism with that attitude? You know, you're going to break so bad at the end. You're going to burn out so bad that you're not going to be able to do activism for the rest of your life. And I actually have a friend who went through this and they haven't been able to do activism for the past year and a half now. And I don't think they ever will. Because there's a level of burnout that if you pass, your brain will shut down as a, as a mean of self-defense every single time you get back to the thing that made it burn out. So for the animals, if you don't care about yourself, but you care about the animals, for the animals, please take care of yourself. So have you have you had any of those sort of, how, how many years have you actually been doing activism now? Five years. Have you had any of those breaks? That's why I'm in Bali. <laughs> <laughs> so th- this is downtime for you now? Not full downtime. But I'll explain what happened. Uh, basically, I overestimated what I can do. and um, Don't we all? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I did um, 49 events in 45 days, including 33 university talks to 2,500 students. So um, what the burnout I went through wasn't like, let's say, a depression-related burnout. It was literally both my body and brain not being able to handle what I'm doing. Because it's not only 33 speeches, it's just speeches and the Q&A session and gathering the feedback and going to the next city. You know, it was like all in 45 days. So sometimes like we'd finish a talk. Uh, I asked a friend to join me to help me out. We'd finish a talk and quickly go to the supermarket, buy a can of um, chickpeas, get on the metro, eat the chickpeas, get to the second university, give the other talk. You know, there was one school where we finished the talk. The second school sent us a a driver to pick us up and take us there just because we were giving three talks on that day. So... I really, at the time when we were, when I was like talking to the people who were helping me organize the talks, I was like, put as many talks as you want per day. I want to reach as many people as possible. And then when I finished the talks straight away, I I did two weeks of activism in Ireland. And that's when I just felt myself going down. Like I, I literally 
couldn't handle it anymore. And I think it was in July, my friend told me, like, she was like, you're, you're forgetting a lot of things. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, she started like stating all the, like telling me all the times that something happened and I completely forgot. And then eventually I remember I, I sent a meme to a friend of mine, an activist, and we laughed about it and we talked about it. And then 20 minutes later, I sent it again. And he was like, Seb, you just sent me this. And I was like, what's going on? And then I said, I said that to a friend and I called a Swedish friend that I have. She's a doctor. She's vegan as well. <laughs> and I told her what's happening. I said, like, I've been experiencing extremely bad short-term memory loss. She basically said, it's not a symptom of burnout. You are in burnout. So basically what happens, and I'm just saying this in case someone might go through something like this and they know what's happening to them. If you like overcharge your brain, it gets to a point of survival. So it only stores information that it needs for survival. That's why I would literally, like I would start a conversation with someone and within five minutes, if they continue the conversation, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? Because my brain doesn't store that information as something I need for my survival. So she told me you have to immediately stop doing activism and like charging your brain with so much, so many things that you're doing and take a break for your own sake, for the sake of the animals. And I, it had actually scared me. So I took the advice. I decided to take a break, not a full break. I'm still doing, um, I'm still creating social media content. I'm also organizing the talks for 2020, which are definitely not going to be as many in one day. So I learned that the hard way. And I share this with people because I want them to know that you don't have to be doing as much as another activist. You don't have to be comparing how much you're doing to how much someone else is doing. Don't do that. You don't know how much help someone gets that you don't know about. You don't know how much financial comfort that someone else has that you don't have. Don't compare compare your activism to someone else. Otherwise, you are going to burn yourself out. So I share this so that people can also see that, yeah, I messed up as well. I planned something in a very extremely irresponsible way. And some people did warn me and I was like, no, it's just talks. It's all right, you know? But yeah, I paid the price. So it's all right, you know? I learned the hard way, but it's all right. I'll be coming back stronger than last year and maybe do more talks, but leave more space between the talks. So you're, fe- yeah. you're feeling better now though? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing is, in the beginning, it's just weird when when you reduce when I reduced the amount of activism I was doing. You know, I was like, ah, it's just YouTube videos and Instagram. You know, it's not enough. And like, I, you feel guilty. And the thing is, feeling guilty for resting is another part of burnout. You're not supposed to feel guilty for resting. That's like the most natural thing. You should feel happy that you're resting. But I I was feeling guilty. But the thing is, because now I'm organizing things for next year. I'm much more comfortable with the fact that I'm, let's say, I'm basically resting from physical activism, from being out there and doing activism and just having a good, like, I needed something somewhere uh, cheap to stay, you know, because I'm not going to live in Europe and pay like $700 a month on rent when I can be here, live cheaper, pay less for rent, pay less for food, you know? So um, it's much better to be here. I'm eating better. My sleep cycle is back to normal, you know? On the tour, it was like, five hours a day, wake up, go to the next city, go to the next country. Uh, Because I was also using only trains to reduce the environmental impact. So it was really difficult. So getting back into that cycle of having normal nights and sleeping well and eating healthier and working out as much as I can, got to get better before um, hitting the road again. Get this basic right. (laughs) Yeah. You mentioned that you are from Lebanon. Yeah. Let's go through how it all sort of started for you and, and how you 
were initially inspired to to make changes to your diet and to start thinking about animals in a different way. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Lebanon? <laughs> Definitely ups and downs as well, because it's such a weird place. I was born around the end of the civil war in Lebanon. There was a 15 year long civil war that ended in 1990. I was born in 89. The first year and a half, there was still war of which I remember nothing, of course. But that resulted in people being very accustomed to war-related things or to violence, or it's, it's just normalized. Like 15 years of civil war, it becomes normalized, you know? As a result, like growing up in Lebanon, it's, it's weird. Like I'm very happy I grew up there because I have a very different perspective on everything. So I remember when I was studying in Europe, there was a terrorist attack and I was like, okay. And I just continue my day, right? No. Because for them, it was like this whole thing for like three weeks, no one was going out, you know, pubs were closing early and this and that. And I was like, like, no, it's all right. But the thing is, that was my reality because in Lebanon, that was considered as something normal. So I was actually 16. We had a cat that my brother found on the street and he brought him home. And my parents had a very strict rule of um, no animals in the house, like no animals. And then my brother shows up with this little kitten and it didn't take my mom more than like five minutes until she was on the sofa and feeding the the kitten. And um, at the end, she was like, if the cat's going to stay in the house, we're going to name him after my childhood cat, whose name was Chichig, which like doesn't mean anything. It's just like some weird noise. I don't know. (laughs) So Chichig stayed with us. And initially I had a huge fight with my parents. I was like, I don't want the cat. If you're going to have an animal, it's going to be a dog. And I don't know what. But we didn't like, Three or four days, I was like, oh, he's so cute. (laughs) So I I became like, let's say, close friends with Chichik. Like whenever I came home, he used to run to the door. I used to pick him up and give me a kiss. If I I asked him to stop, he would stop. If I threw him like like a ball, he would bring it back. He kind of like identified as a dog, which was perfect for me as well. Eventually one day, actually he even had his own Facebook page with like 100 friends, out of which like 95 were mutual friends with me. I don't know who the rest are. And eventually my, my mom one day said that she wants to do an operation and remove his nails because um, he was destroying the couches, which he definitely was. But I was such an admirer of Chichi that I was like, oh, you're not allowed to do that. You know, this, this is the cat's right to have his nails. And my mom didn't listen to me. So I just launched a Facebook group and I invited all my friends because all my friends knew about Chichi. And they were all like writing their messages to my mom. And I was reading them out loud in the house. And at the end, she was like, fine, I won't do it. So we, we claimed victory and she got to keep his name. That was your, your introductory into activism. Exactly, exactly. So um, shaming my mom <laughs> publicly. So um, during that time, a friend of mine who was vegetarian, she called me out on my hypocrisy. So she you're, said, what, you're 16. Yeah. 16 at the time. So, Still living um, in Lebanon. Yeah. Yeah. So she tells me, you claim to love animals, you claim to love your cat and this and that. And you're like, so happy that you managed to convince your mom not to do it, but you still eat animals. So like, you're not really an animal lover. You just love your cat. And obviously that translates in my head to, you are a hypocrite. And that, that's what it is, you know? So I obviously didn't like hearing that. I started arguing with her and she said, listen, let's stop arguing. I'm going to show you a video and then we can talk about it. And she showed me a video on YouTube called Meet Your Meat. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like 10 minutes long. It's just like slaughterhouse footage and farm footage. It's it's really like powerful footage. And at the end, I finished watching. I was like, what do I do now? Like, there's 
definitely no way I want to be supporting this. You felt guilty. <laughs> so guilty. And I was like, and I, I hated that because I, I loved, I loved meat. I loved chicken. I used to go hunting every now and then. Were, were you eating a lot of, of yeah. animal products in so, Lebanon? Yeah, 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 definitely. Cheese, eggs. Eggs used to be like one of my favorite. Um, chicken shawarma, you know, barbecue on Sundays. Is that pretty typical of, of Lebanon in it, general? It, it depends on the, on the socioeconomic I would class. say, um, I don't think it depends that much. I would say it's it's more like there's a huge variety of vegan food that is Lebanese, like strictly traditional Lebanese food is mostly vegan. But they, all these meals are considered a side dish of, let's say, the animal-based meal. Mm. That That's why it all comes together, even though the majority is vegan. There's always like, they're, they're considered side dish, they're not considered full meals. Yeah, it was weird because I, I, I used to enjoy hunting as well. But then I realized, yeah, this, my friend is vegetarian and she's living and well, so I have no justification. So I became vegetarian. At that point in time, yeah, people weren't really talking much about veganism. Nothing. You hadn't, I had, you hadn't I come had across it. Nothing. I didn't know anything. I hadn't heard a word. I hadn't met a vegan or anything. And this is like 2005, uh, something around there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then 2006, there was a war in Lebanon. 33-day war, they call it the July War with the Israeli army, which was the real, like, real war that I experienced. There was a lot of, like, let's say, war crimes, like a lot of fully civilian areas and even, like, a refugee camp that was bombarded by the army. And I remember one day there was a massacre of refugees and most of them were kids under the age of eight. And I saw all the images. And yeah, I, I was 17. I wasn't that young, but it really, really impacted me. Like seeing all these kids like literally lined up on the floor, their bodies completely destroyed, all because they were in a refugee camp that belongs to the United Nations. Like you're not even supposed to bomb that, you know? And that's when I felt like, I think that was one of the major things that makes me want to not shut up against violence or oppression. That like, because I remember that they would so many like details in my head, like the emotion, everything that came with it. I remember it so well that I really strongly believe that it's it's one of the driving forces mm-hmm. as well that I have when it comes to standing up against um, violence, unnecessary violence and oppression. After that, I was so I was vegetarian for eight years with having absolutely no knowledge about veganism until like some people started saying it, like, oh, are you gonna ever go gonna go vegan? And I I I started thinking that veganism is like this um, kind of extreme thing people do if they have like specific, specific food allergies. And I was like, no, 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 you know, I need protein from eggs and it calcium from milk. So I would never go vegan. I would never do that. And eight years after, one day I was wondering how come we actually like drink the breast milk? We as adult humans. So there's two things, adults and humans. We drink the breast milk that is not made for adults of a cow. So it's not even like, I'm not even drinking breast milk from a human, which like almost no one would if they're grownups. Mm, they, but that would make more, more sense. sense right? Definitely. If, if adults were meant to have biologically require milk, yeah. it would make more sense to, to be drink getting that from humans. a human mother. Yeah, yeah. But we drink it from cows. And I found that extremely weird. So I went on Google and I wrote, why don't vegans drink milk? And I ended up watching Earthlings documentary and then Gary Orofsky's speech and another speech called 101 Reasons to Go Vegan. And then I watched a documentary on the Animal Liberation Front, the Earth Liberation Front. And I was like, that's it. I'm going vegan. (laughs) 
And were you happy about that? No, initially I was really frustrated because I was like, I got to take these things off the plate. I know. Because I was like, man, this is going to be tough. Cheese, yogurt, you know, eggs, eggs, man. Like, I love eggs. I'm not going to have eggs anymore. But that was the thing. Like, I found out about it. I was like, this sucks, but I'm going to have to do it. Because for eight long years, I've been talking about the animals, this, the animals, that. You shouldn't eat meat. You should not necessarily kill. So unless I want to be a hypocrite now, now that I know, I'm going to have to go. Is, this, is that a fairly typical journey of a lot of vegetarians from like the 70s, 80s, 90s? Yeah, probably. Uh, like that you speak to, have, have many of them since converted to a vegan diet? Definitely, because the thing is, I remember when I went vegan, uh, sorry, yeah, actually, when I went vegan, I hadn't even met a vegan. I was the first vegan I knew, you know? And that was just six years ago. And imagine like how much has changed between like the, like during the past six years. It's crazy. If you think about how much, how much more normalized veganism is, how many more people do you meet that say, oh, I'm vegan. Oh, my boyfriend's vegan. My mom's vegan. My partner's vegan. I don't know who's vegan, you know? Everybody knows now. Almost everybody knows what a vegan is. So it's, it's definitely a huge change. But at the time, and I can imagine that a lot of people went through the same thing where they were vegetarian. And then they found out like there's like there's this thing called veganism. Just back to vegetarian because I think that's an interesting one. So you, you you watch these videos and you decided you had to go vegan. You needed to remove dairy and eggs. Why? What did you see? And yeah. and what happens in those industries? Because I think you know a, a lot of people may be unaware or perhaps more unaware of how those industries are unethical. What is it about the the dairy and the egg industry that is not ethical? All right. So basically, I mean, it, it sounds quite innocent, right? You're just drinking milk. You're not thinking of like killing someone. But the way it happens is, first of all, cows don't produce milk for the sake of producing milk. They're not like a tree who just produces fruits. The only reason cows produce milk is because they got pregnant and they gave birth. And therefore, just like any other mammal, their body started producing breast milk. So for us to have their breast milk, it means their babies are not going to have the, bre- the breast milk. So in um, standard farming, what happens is, first of all, they, they get the bulls and they anally electrocute them, which results in ejaculation. And they collect the semen and then they use the semen um, and put their arms inside the cow in what the industry calls a rape rack and leaves they leave the semen. So basically, the industry yeah, it's, it's called it the rape, a rape rack. rack. So yeah. that's not something the activists no, 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 no. have come up with. Yeah. They yeah. use that term. Wow. Yeah, it's it's really messed up. Like that's how like normal it is. Like if you just write rape rack, you can you can get it. Like I because I, I looked it up, you know, I was like, what the hell? Like how how do you feel even comfortable calling it that? You know? In beautiful words, artificial insemination. So they get the cow pregnant in that way. After like the pregnancy, the cow gives birth. Now, after giving birth, if the baby stays with the cow, the calf, he or she is going to start drinking the milk that in, is in a natural in a natural, natural yeah, environment. Exactly that which is so like this, which is what the milk is made for. You know the the calf, but they take the calf away maybe on the first day or the second or the third day. And they put the calf away and they start taking the milk to sell it for human consumption, to make butter, to make cheese, to sell it as fresh milk or whatever. Basically, two things happen at this point. The calf, if it's a male, they kill the calf straight away because what is a male calf going to bring to the dairy industry? So they're considered useless. 
So they either get killed and they're just garbage or they get killed and their flesh is sold as veal, you know, which is just like a beautiful word again to say a killed, a murdered baby cow because we took the milk and the cow, like, I mean, the calf doesn't bring us anything. So we're going to sell it as veal. If the calf is female, uh, she will be put in another side of the farm where she will grow mm. until two years old. Was, was she fed if she doesn't have the, the breast milk? Sorry? What's the, the, the thing? Uh, they, they, they just give like formulas or grains or things like that. Yeah, it's, it's really weird. And, and it's sometimes even really disturbing because like, they, they, like I've been inside farms and they try to create things that look like uh, the others. And it's like, can you just let the calf have the milk? You know, why do you have to go into all this process to create something synthetic that might look like the other of the, of the mother? for the cow to, to try to suck and um, get the milk, you know? And if you actually spend time with calves on dairy farms, the second you approach your hand, they start suckling on your fingers because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for their mother's milk. Yeah, if she's a female, she's put somewhere else. And after growing up and at least like becoming two years older, she starts going through the same process of getting artificially inseminated and having, having her kids taken away from her, babies taken away from her. And basically that... That goes on for like, I think around five years. So for five years, the cows are artificially inseminated and then their babies are taken away from them. And you know the- So they're just pregnant the whole time. Yeah, exactly. And and not only is that really physically exhausting, it's also emotionally exhausting because cows do have the bond with their babies. You know, like you go into a dairy farm where the cows have just given birth, you hear them crying out for their babies. You hear the babies crying out for the mothers, you know? First one I entered, actually, it was a Cadbury farm. So it belonged to Cadbury. And all the babies were like facing that way. And in the back on the right side were all the mothers. And literally all the mothers had gathered like on the corner and crying out for their babies. But the babies are facing that way, so they can't even see mothers. It's really disturbing, like to say the least. And this is like standard industry practice. This is how it works. And then after five years of going through this, they eventually just collapse from exhaustion and they're called a downer. So a downer is a cow that can no longer go through this. And that's when they take her and they send her to slaughter for her flesh. That is why there's no difference between the meat industry and the dairy industry. And I would even argue that the dairy industry is much worse than the meat industry. But up to 50% of the flesh that is eaten by humans, you know, the burgers and sausages, comes from dairy industry mothers who can no longer die, like no longer uh, continue the process. So they are killed for, for, for their flesh after five years instead of living like 15 to 20 years in nature. Now, when it comes to eggs, eggs is also one of these things where it, it just seems so like innocent. You're literally just picking up an egg and eating it, you know? So it doesn't like, you wouldn't think that there's any cruelty involved. Now, we have to keep in mind that it's not always like how it's done, it's not, it's, not, it's not an animal welfare issue. It's not about the cruelty only, let's say. It's the fact that they are treated as objects. It's the fact that they are treated as commodities. You know, they don't have the right to their own life. So when it comes to eggs, we can talk like all day about like battery cages and everything, you know, which I've seen as well. And it's like, they take like these very small cages and stuff them with like seven chickens and they're just there like laying eggs the whole time and the lights are on the whole time to also make them extremely anxious and and that results in like more laying eggs or something and they're not healthy and they're just miserable there their whole life and they don't even know why. And 
that is like the, let's say the worst case. I mean, there's definitely worse, but then there's the other side where like they call it free range, which basically means you can put up to 15,000 chickens in one shed because there's no cages. So you can just fill it up. You know, that's free range. That's also very famous and, nowadays. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this, I mean, these are all females, right? Yeah. No matter what that practice. Yeah. In order to get those females, there's going to be a certain number of males that are also, also always that are also uh, given birth to. Yeah, the, and and what happens to those? Yeah, so basically, first of all, they get the males. Um, they they have these specific parts of some farms where the males are free to roam around to basically like have sex with the females, and then that results in laying eggs um, that are fertilized, and then once the eggs because there, there's two different parts of the answer. There's a part that creates eggs that are not fertilized, which are like the cages or the free range ones. And there's a part where, where, where they're laying eggs that are fertilized. So there's a, there's a baby chick inside. So if you're going to start from the beginning, there's um, the insemination, the fertilization, and there's the egg. And then they take the eggs and there's these hatcheries, which are basically huge, huge factories where there's thousands of eggs that are going to break and there's a chicken side, but you don't know if the chick is male or female. So there's these conveyor belts and there's workers on each side and they separate the male from the female. And the females are because they're going to lay eggs, as you said. So they go on a, on a different um, conveyor belt and the males, they go straight into a shredder, literally the first minute that they're alive, like the first hours of their first day alive, they're going to go into a shredder. And yeah, we shred them alive and we call that humane actually. And I actually have a childhood friend who works in the poultry industry. And he told me that at work, they don't call it the shredder. They call it the euthanizer because it causes them less stress to think that they're shredding alive tens of thousands of chicks every single day. So on what basis is that considered humane? Like where, where's, what, what is that, the definition? This, this brings us to a, yeah. a very interesting topic yeah. because whether it's social media or just, you know, even government conversations, I've seen you post a video about a, an animal activist. I think he was Australian. Yeah, and, Chris Force. And we'll, we can talk about that in a minute. But we hear this notion of, of humane animal practices or humane slaughter or certified humane yeah. Is, is there a humane way to exploit an animal or, and to, to, so, to consume animal products? Well, think about it this way. If you don't call it humane, what are you going to call it to sell it to people? You know, people who are like raising questions, people who are becoming more conscious, how do you get them to stay on your side? The only thing you can do is false marketing. You take, let's say you have a free range farm with 50,000 chickens you take the product, you look at it, it's a chicken walking around in a beautiful garden, you know? And then they call it free range, happy eggs. They sort of, oh, by the way, like when I was vegetarian, I was buying all these products, the happy milk, the free range eggs and all these things, because it made me feel good. That's the thing. That's how it works. You make the consumer feel good about the product they're not supposed to feel good about. You separate them. Yeah. From what's happening. And they love that. And I love that. I love the fact that I'm going to pay one euro more and get the, and get the milk from happy cows because cows deserve to be happy. I used to do that, you know? So, and people like non-vegans have to keep this in mind, you know, just because I'm talking about animal rights now and veganism doesn't mean I've been vegan my whole life. You know, I've, I've been where you are. Hey, like I used to go hunt, you know, like literally I was on the other side. I've done that. And it's like humane, like the, the definition of humane is to show compassion or benevolence. So if we're going to rephrase that, or let's make it more, let's say simple in terms, how do you compassionately 
unnecessarily kill an animal who doesn't want to die. Yeah, I guess on the on the other side of the fence, they're saying that it's a spectrum and that it's more humane than yeah. some other practice. I would just say it less evil because there's no that it's never going to be humane. It's unnecessary. There's no way it can ever get close to being humane. Give me an example of what they classify a humane okay. or humane agriculture. Putting pigs into a gas chamber in 2019 is called humane. And I've heard their screams inside a gas chamber. It's like the most terrifying thing you can hear. So just pump them full of oxygen. Ex- uh, CO2. CO2. Sorry. Yeah. So basically they put them on this ca- in these cages and they lower them into gas chambers and they pop in, pump in CO2. And literally the worker of the slaughterhouse told me, imagine you're breathing and instead of air, it's filling up with water in your lungs and you're suffocating from the inside. That's what the pigs feel like. And so as a result, they pass out. When they pass out, they hang them upside down and they slit their throat. But because during the process of slitting their throat, the pig was unconscious, it's called humane. So it's, it completely doesn't take into consideration that the whole process was unnecessary, you know? So let's think about it this way. We bring a dog here, you know, very happy dog, beautiful Labrador or something like that, you know? And this Labrador has had a beautiful life playing every day in the wild, you know, being happy, getting all the treats, getting all the belly rubs and everything. And then one day the Labrador falls asleep. And another method, by the way, of um, killing animals humanely is to use a bolt gun. So basically it's like a gun and they put it on the forehead and they shoot and the metal makes them unconscious. So the argument there is they didn't know it was coming. Yeah, yeah. So imagine the dog is asleep and I take out a bolt gun, unnecessarily shoot the dog. He doesn't know it's coming. Yeah, he he had a beautiful life, quick death. And I slit his throat. He didn't feel anything. Can I go around and say, I humanely killed an animal? And would you pay me for that? You know, there's, there's no way these things would make sense in any way in a sane society. But we are so conditioned. We like, and, and the fact that you've given them a good life gives that yeah. animal more of a reason. <laughs> to, to, to continue that happy life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are like, I only eat like happy cows. So you're literally killing someone who's happy? <laughs> you know, like... Is that does that sound better for you? You know, you want them to be happy. Just don't kill them, you know, because they're not going to be happy when they're dead, you know? So it's really like that. And yeah, in the, in the, in the hatcheries, they call it uh, euthanasia because it, it, it just feels less bad for them. Now, but that's just the term they use between each other. They say, well, yeah, we, we euthanize them. Sometimes they put them in small gas chambers. Sometimes they put them in plastic bags. Sometimes they drown them in water, what, whatever they can afford to do. That's what they'll do to get rid of the male chicks. And for the female chicks, they go to the farms. And I want to talk about this quickly. An egg is basically the non-fertilized reproductive system of a chicken, the equivalent of the ovulation of a female human being. So a woman, if she's ovulating, that is what laying an egg is for a chicken. So naturally, they're supposed to lay between 12 to 20 eggs a year, like more or less like a human being, you know? Today, because of genetic manipulation throughout the past hundreds of years, um, chickens in farms, they lay 365 eggs a year. They ovulate 365 days. You know, like you and, my, you and me would never understand mm. what that feels like. But That must change life expectancy as well. Yeah, of course, of course. But like uh, for, for any female listeners, anyone who ovulates, you know, I'd ask you like, how would you feel ovulating for 365 days a year? That That's not going to be a fun experience, you know? And they just go through that cycle and it, all because we want to have their eggs for breakfast. And yeah, it was literally my favorite thing for breakfast. 
it was as easy as no one has to suffer that much for me to have something. I bet you get asked all the time about protein. (laughs) Protein. Certainly, (laughs) we can come to that. But I bet you're also asked about people who have chickens on their own farm. Yeah. Who, you know, they look after them. They have no intention to to harm the animal. Feed them good food. They're laying, backyard they're laying, eggs, backyard, they're laying yeah. backyard eggs. Yeah. Now, where do you sit in terms of that? If you're taking those eggs, does that again feed back into what you're saying and they're going to ovulate more? Or, you know, is there an argument there for ethical consumption of backyard eggs? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, again, I want to go through it like per definition, but also then per logic, because sometimes like we shouldn't be going everything with definition. Um, so, yeah, as a vegan, if you consume any type of animal product, it is not seen as vegan. That's, that's per definition. But I much rather listen to science rather than vegans or philosophy. So scientifically speaking, um, basically what happens is when they lay the egg and you take that egg away, it makes them anxious because for them, it doesn't make any sense why they saw, like why you would take that egg or if you took it while they weren't there that they came back and it's not there. By the way, even if it's not fertilized, all right, let's just say the egg is there and it's not going to be used. It does make them uh, like just as anxious. And then that results in them feeling that they have to lay another egg. Because we're talking about a species that has been genetically modified and exploited in this way for hundreds of years. So that is their reaction to their egg going missing. So you do cause stress in your chickens. And if you love them so much and you're giving them a beautiful life, please love them enough to, or respect them enough to not cause them more stress. Another thing is that when they lay an egg, they lose a lot of nutrients, especially calcium. And calcium is a loss because of the formation of the eggshell. So the best thing you can do, and I, I've done this myself, it's one of the nicest things, the funniest thing, take the egg and break it in front of the chicken and they just jump on it and they, they eat it back because that's how they can regain the nutrients that they lose when they're laying eggs. So if you really care about those backyard chickens and you want to give them the good life and you want them to be healthy, it's their eggs, their bodies, their lives, give it back to them. You definitely don't need another egg. If you have an excess amount of eggs and like you don't know what to do with them, you can always give it to other animals or you can simply do what a friend of mine does. She just goes out for a walk in the forest and leaves it out in the trees, like in the wild because there's foxes or other animals that would like to eat it. That's what it is. But again, it's not good for you either. The, the amount of cholesterol and you have animal protein, in it, which is like extremely unhealthy. So you don't want to be messing with that. Just Leave it. <laughs> so you found all this information. You moved from your vegetarian diet to vegan diet. Remove the eggs. Remove the dairy. What was that period like? How was that? Was that an easy transition for you? And how was that? I guess received by your friends and, and family yeah. around you. So um, no one was happy about it. <laughs> I wasn't happy. Were either. you? Were you? Were you? The, you know, this the weird guy, the the different guy that was yeah. down a different path. Yeah, definitely. Because I was already vegetarian and the only vegetarian around. So now I was just becoming more difficult for other people to be around. But this was six years ago. Like, it's not the same now. You know, like someone goes vegan now. It's just like, yeah, another vegan friend. You know, it's no more like, oh, it's the end of the world for us. We can't hang out anymore. I remember the first days that I went vegan, my mind just blocked. I just ate pasta for three days. Because like I couldn't think of anything else I can cook. Because I've had this like stereotype in my head that like, 
if it doesn't have any animal products, then like it's not it's not food. So I was like, ah, oh, there's nothing to eat that's vegan. What is this? And then I was like, just Google vegan recipes. And I, of course, there's so many things you can eat, up to 75,000 edible plants, you know, and, and we're stuck about eating five dead animals and what come the, come, comes out of their bodies. You know, it's ridiculous if you think about it. If anything, I have been eating a much bigger variety of food ever since I've been vegan than my life before that. So the first few days was weird. And if you're not vegan and you're listening, like as an animal rights activist, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be the easiest thing you've done in your life. Definitely not. It is a huge change. You're changing what you're doing something at least three times a day to something new. Now, like if you like to think about it as what you actually do when you go vegan, it's literally you go to the same supermarket. Instead of doing this and picking up the cow milk, you just do this and you pick up the soy milk or the almond milk or the cashew milk. And you've got great options now in 2009. Seriously. It's, I mean, I, I don't want to say like back when, when I went vegan, you know, it wasn't that but, but bad. I, I still had the option, but, but now. But imagine like the 1970s, yeah, the 80s. Yeah, like, definitely. It would have been much tougher. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's 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 comfortable now. It was more like make your own milk or no milk. <laughs> yeah, it's actually very comfortable now. Definitely. And like you said, there's there's an opportunity to to eat so many new foods. Yeah. That not the variety that most people ridiculous. you know never. I know that yeah. I was I was my diversity in my diet was terrible. Now that I look back on it. <laughs> I look back on it and I just think, wow. I used to just have eggs for breakfast and then make some pasta real quick or rice and then have some, I don't know, uh, I don't know, and then pasta again with cheese on top, just like dairy and eggs all the time as a vegetarian and as a vegan, just meat and rice and things like that. So yeah, it's it's a huge change if you think about how much the world has changed in the past six years when it comes to vegan products. But yeah, it's not going to be the most simple thing you do as a change, but it is going to be the most impactful thing you're going to do, not only for your health, also for the environment and also for the animals. So if you go vegan and then the second day you're kind of freaking out, that's all right. It's like <laughs> you don't need to freak out, but if it happens, it happens, you know, just check into like call, call a vegan friend, message a vegan friend, Google it, you know, it's especially if you have the chance to sit down and listen to this podcast. You know, you have the privilege to do that, to, to, to watch more videos on YouTube. Like you have the time, you have the, uh, the access, you have the availability to do these researches. You will end up looking back to it and thinking, why didn't I do this sooner? That's literally every single time someone asks a vegan, what is the, what, What's one thing you regret about um, going vegan? Everyone says that I didn't do it sooner. Because why would you not want to stop contributing to mass slaughter sooner? Or like soon as possible, you know, like from birth, let's say. But you didn't have control over that. But nowadays, you know, even if you're very short on time, you can always like, you can go to this new great website called veganbootcamp.org. All you have to do is just go, you don't have a lot of time, that's completely fine. You don't have time to watch documentaries, that's completely fine. Go on veganbootcamp.org, sign up. They will help you out for free. You get everything you need to go vegan. So you have direct, free, professional access to help, like to go vegan. Why not do it? You know, you got nothing to lose and, and everything to win, you and the animals and the environment. So at, at what point after transitioning to a vegan diet did you decide that you wanted to devote your life to activism, to being a yeah. voice, um, to educating people and inspiring people to transition to this lifestyle. Yeah. 
I think it was um, around one year after, I remember seeing pictures of, I think they're two sisters, uh, activists, animal rights activists based in London. And they were going in the London Metro with white masks on, holding laptops, showing Earthlings, the documentary. And that impacted me so much because I was like, I want to do that in Barcelona because I was living there back then. And I went on this Barcelona vegan group on Facebook and I wrote down like, hey, who wants to do this? And it turns out there was a group doing that already. So I just joined them. And that was one year after going vegan. And it's interesting because the first months that I was vegan, even though I went vegan because of ethical reasons, I still looked at it as, no, it's all right. I do my thing. If you want to eat animal products, it's completely fine. You know, I still had that attitude. But then when I realized that, hey, I can use my privilege of having this information to share it with others. Because I think everyone has the right to have this information, whether it's for the animals, for the environment, or for their health. So why would I not do that? Why do I want to be so selfish to keep it to myself? You know, that was one year after. And I think it was three years after doing activism like that at the time. So two years, two years ago, I was working, I'm an architect. So I was working in an architecture company. I decided to quit my job to fully devote my time for animal rights activism, just because I started doing so much activism and I started seeing so much impact. Let's say I started seeing so many people that are so open that I was like, I can't just do this like a couple of times a week. I just want to be doing this the whole time. You know, I don't want to sit back and like design a hospital for some customer to be more rich. Now I'm just saying hospital because that was like my last project. Obviously hospitals should be built. I'm not saying they shouldn't be built, but like the company that I was working for, super unethical company, you know, they just want to get richer and taking any project. But they should be built in a way that is targeting preventing disease in the exactly, first place. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> which which actually like is another aspect of veganism that a lot of people, like it's just not mentioned enough. The amount of public funds that we spend on healthcare because of diseases that we could prevent if we just changed our food system. I looked up the Australian, the burden of disease in Australia and how much of the healthcare budget goes to preventative lifestyle medicine. So prevention... Funding for prevention campaigns is 1.7% of the total budget, but that's not all towards diet, right? Yeah. That gets broken down. So a percentage of that is to road fatality. A percentage of that is to smoking. Oh, so it's, so it's, it, it's going to be, it's a fraction of that that is dedicated to educating the public about diet to prevent the diseases in the first place. Wow. And that's probably that's, not, pretty, that's probably pretty similar across you know the most yeah, Western definitely. countries. And to think that like well, one in three or one in five die of uh, heart disease, you know, it's cancer nowadays. We all know someone who's died of cancer or, or heart disease. If you don't like, I hope you like, never do. I mean, you, you you spoke about it becoming sort of the norm to eat these these animal products. Yeah, and it's also the norm to, to get the disease. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's up to diabetes, cancer, uh, heart disease. This is stuff in our Western populations and now developing countries yeah, who are changing exactly. the way they eat, uh, just exactly. putting their hand up and, and sort of accepting that that's yeah. just the way of life. I was um, just the other day listening to a podcast by, it's called The Plant Code. He was interviewing a vegan woman. In, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Kenya. Yeah. And she said that in Kenya, the, the rates of cancer are so high that now it's a thing oh, to die of cancer. Like, oh, you die, oh they died or, of old age or cancer. Like, it's like a normal thing, but most people are just dying of cancer. And it's like, how could we ever normalize 
that's by cancer. You know, that, that's, that's not supposed to happen. We should really take a step back and go like, wait, what are we doing wrong and how can we change it? People often describe animal activists as extreme or sanctimonious or, yeah. you know, over, over the top aggressive mm-hmm. how does that make you feel knowing what you, you know and what you've seen happen at the slaughterhouses how does that make you feel when when they label activists as extreme yeah i would always ask what is so extreme in trying to prevent unnecessary suffering like is that really extreme i i would really prefer labeling unnecessary destruction and killing of innocent animals extreme, you know? I would describe a society that sees animal slaughter as something normal extreme. And if you believe animal activism is extreme, maybe you should like ask yourself, like, what is it that makes you think that activism is extreme? Which part of you is not comfortable enough with activism? Maybe you don't feel comfortable doing activism yourself and therefore you believe it's extreme. But that's probably because you think activism means being out there on the street doing something. But that's not only activism. Activism can be in schools, in universities, at your workplace, at your family gatherings, you know, social media content, cooking for other people, you know, doing podcasts like this, you know, all of this are just different types of activism. I believe a a lot of the time people think it's extreme is because they just think that you are an animal rights activist, therefore you break into farms and you're extreme. You know, so they they have this stereotype of what an activist. Did you is. see what happened the the news in Melbourne earlier in the year about the activists that had broken in to a few of the the, the farms? Yeah, it was it was it was it was it was major headlines, and there was also some protesting going on down. I remember the the Dominion action in April. Yeah, that was in Australia. Yeah, so maybe I'm, maybe I'm thinking about that. Yeah, they they locked down this, the yeah. main intersection, I think, of Melbourne. But the media sort of tried to you know make the activists out as crazy. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I'll tell you why. Yeah, yeah talk, talk me through that. So you were down there. Yeah, think about it this way. The media, what do they want? They want drama, right? They, 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 want, they, they want money, of course, but a lot of money comes from publicity and publicity pays you more when you have a lot of people viewing, like watching what you're doing. And what attracts a lot of people? Drama mm. and problems and creating fear. What the media is expert at doing is portraying animal rights activism as a war between vegans and farmers. Like, I can Is that not, true? No, no. I think that's the most messed up thing to not use other words to do because they are. I swear on here if you need to. <laughs> it's the most fucked up thing you can do, to be honest. If someone is using their time and risking their freedom to raise awareness about an industry that is unnecessarily causing so much suffering, killing so many human beings with their disease and destroying the environment. If someone is doing all of that and you're taking that and you're portraying it as if the only reason they're doing is because they believe farmers should should stop doing what they do and they should like um, lose their income and their families and they should be punished for it. That's really low of you, you know? I cannot express to you how many times I've talked to farmers, you know? Vegans and farmers can get along if the media didn't interfere. So what would you what would you like to to happen to the farmers then if you're if you're wanting We should work together. We yeah. should work together on helping them switch to another business. And the way we should work together is by both of us, both of the groups pressuring the government to switch the animal agriculture subsidies to helping these farmers find more ethical, just and sustainable. Like use those subsidies 
to find those other types of businesses that they could go into, not only for the farmer's sake, because believe me, farmers are sick of the industry as well. If you just like, if you ever get the chance to talk to a farmer, like who, who took it from his father or something, you know, born on the land, they hate the industry because the industry is destroying them. They pay them nothing. You know, they have very high levels of like, let's say depression or sometimes suicide because they just can't afford this way of life that they were born into, which by the way, also means it's not their fault that they're born into it. We should all work together and like, we should team up to tell the government, we want to change this. You know, that cannot happen. All right. If, the big industry doesn't doesn't want it to happen. And what the big industry does is it creates these dramas and then the media helps the industry because there's always money involved and they portray it as a war between vegans and... and when you say the big industry. Yeah. So like I'm comparing massive factory farm companies to like a small farm, you gotcha. know? So, so the, sm- the local farmers yeah. are much more receptive. Of course. Of, but, but, but also... If they're not, it's also because they are so sick of not being treated well that when a vegan talks to them, they're just sick of it. So it makes sense that they're not open to it. And and I can respect that. And I'm sure that they also are, if they're not speaking directly with a vegan, they are reading the headlines. Oh, yeah. And the the headlines make it out as if the vegans are out to send them broke. Yeah. Exactly. Now, uh, actually, when I was in Australia, um, a farmer reached out to me on Instagram. He sent me a picture of a big piece of flesh and he said, oh, look what I'm having for dinner. And I just replied, I was like, dude, like, doesn't, you're not upsetting me if that's what you're trying. And then like, it was back and forth of like him trying to piss me off and me saying something back. And then I said, I think, yeah, I said something like, listen, do you want to continue just like bashing each other or have a normal conversation? And he immediately went like, listen, man, I really understand where you guys are coming from. I just don't like the way you do it. And from that moment on, we chatted for two hours on Instagram. And it ended up that this guy, he's just on a small farm that he got from his, uh, from his father. He has pigs and cows as well. One of the pigs is his friend sleeps inside in the house. So it's like a pet pig or something. And he actually loves animals, of course. Like, they, they all love animals, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and the yeah. thing is like the small farms, you know, it's different because they have contact with the animals, yeah. but they're also conditioned that, yeah, at the end, it's okay to send them to slaughter, which obviously it's not. You'd never do that to someone you love. But at the end, he told me that farmers in Australia are sick of the industry as well. And he was telling me about, what's this huge supermarket chain called? Woolworths? Yeah. He was like, yeah, Woolworths fucking us over and I don't know what. So basically what the media does is because they know if, if the farmers get on our side, these companies are fucked. So because then we, ha- we, we are much more than them and we can have a much more of an impact and we could probably pressure the government to change the subsidies, but then the big animal agriculture industry doesn't want that. So it doesn't let it happen. It pays these small farms close to nothing, which is why they're so like broke and they're so like miserable and upset when vegans start, start doing activism understandable. It's your livelihood. You want to protect it. That's completely fine. However, there's a victim involved. So you should understand that other people will stand up against it. So if it's seen that way, it takes the attention away from the animals. If you make it to seem as a war between activists and farmers, suddenly the animal is not even in the conversation. It's humans against humans. Well, no, I have nothing against farmers. I don't like what they do, but there's a lot of like, I don't, for example, I probably am not against a certain human being but if they're a drug dealer, I don't like what they do. And I will try to change that about them because let's say their, their form of business is probably 
they're selling, selling heroin, let's say there's people dying because of it. There's families losing people because of it. So I would campaign against that to change that. Not because I want him to go broke and lose his family income, just because I believe like it's better to, for him and for everyone else to find another source of income. And yeah, I really, really believe that at one point in the future, some farmers are going to start joining animal rights activists on pressuring the government to start giving farmers subsidies. A lot of money from subsidies, tax money is used for this industry. So that money is going gonna, is gonna to start going to farmers to switch their business to something else. So what was actually happening down in Melbourne on that? So um, like, what was if that? I'm not mistaken, on the 8th of April, throughout the whole nation, uh, throughout the, uh, all of Australia, there was um, the Dominion Action. So Dominion Action comes from the a documentary called Dominion, which was made by Aussie Farms, which is an animal protection group in Australia, which, by the way, just got their charity status taken away from them. So basically what they did throughout the whole country, in Melbourne, for example, they they did a lockdown of the biggest intersection. So I don't know, 50 or 60 or 70 activists, they locked themselves down. They put a van in the middle of the, of the intersection, which said uh, throughout the whole country, actually, the action had people wearing T-shirts and having posters that said watchdominion.com. And um, there was a, an awareness, an awareness campaign. Yeah. Completely nonviolent, completely like peaceful action. In uh, other parts, for example, I was in Queensland, a bunch of activists entered the slaughterhouse and chained themselves to machinery. Same thing happened. Some Did you do that? I was outside the slaughterhouse. So I, I was completely legal. <laughs> um, what, do you th- what do you think about breaking the, the law? to yeah, fight so, for something that you- The reason why I didn't do that is because I was on a tourist visa yeah. for which I was, uh, of course, you're you're not allowed to break. I mean, you're not allowed to break the law in general, but if I were to break the law while I'm on a tourist visa, then that means I will probably never be able to come to Australia again, which I, didn't, I don't want to happen. So I didn't want to break any laws. I'm not against people breaking laws to bring a better change in society. Throughout history, different social justice movements at all points had to break the law to bring massive change in society. And I'm not saying breaking the law by, let's say, doing something violent, like kicking someone in the face or attacking someone. I'm saying breaking the law peacefully that in a way that doesn't result in, in suffering of any human or, or animal. So these guys broke in, chained themselves to a crib. Exactly. And, and they had signs that said, we are peaceful. So when the workers arrived, they're like, okay, what's going on? All right, we're not going to move. Um, we want to rescue some animals. And like they start doing, having a conversation. All right, we will get out of here peacefully if you could, if you could give us some sheep. It was a slaughterhouse for sheep. Basically at the end, it was a long thing because when we arrived outside, there was like, I don't know, probably a hundred of us, but then there was like, 50 or 60 farmers that arrived as well who were against us. But And what was that like in terms of- There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of tension, but some of us were having good conversations, you know, some of us bad conversations. Whenever there was bad conversation and tension, you just walk away, you know, no one's getting physical, no one's getting violent. We talked to to the slaughterhouse workers as well. Uh, the outside team, some of the activists had TVs showing footage from that was taken from that slaughterhouse. So the workers were watching themselves slaughtering animals, which was a very weird thing, like powerful thing to just see someone like just staring at themselves, killing an animal. And there was one point where one of the workers said, he pointed at a second, like throughout the video where something that was done was illegal. Like you're not supposed to treat animals that way. He just pointed at it and he said, uh, if that goes on TV, we're fucked. And we have that on video. (laughs) It was very powerful, you know, because even... 
they they start realizing like yeah we're not we're not even like obviously because they're thinking oh this is this type of slaughter is illegal we shouldn't be doing this so if it goes on tv it's fucked but the thing is any type of slaughter is unjust you know and yeah we had open conversations like they were just nice guys who happened to do that for a living you know do i like what they do no am i am i gonna portray them as evil people no like that, do, do most of them like what they do? No, that's the thing. So actually, there's um, a lot of research that has been done on slaughterhouse workers. It is uh, one of the jobs that has the highest rates of PTSD, um, anxiety, depression, alcohol or drug abuse. Also in areas where there's a lot of slaughterhouses, there, the rates of domestic violence is higher. The thing is, I mean, you're talking about an industry that makes you shut off all your sense of compassion violence becomes normal exactly so normal that when you get home after eight hours of stabbing animals in the throat you know someone pisses you off i'm not gonna like i'm not saying by the way like i'm definitely not saying all sort of house workers go home and stab their wife or something that's not what i'm saying but if violence becomes normalized in your head just like any other person from any industry or any surrounding it is more likely for you to take part in violence. Mm. That's just a fact, you know? And I know that from Lebanon as well, you know, violence is so normalized that the smallest thing can make someone pull out their gun as well because it's something normal for them. So, yeah. This bit about activism and, and, and the law and having to break the law to, to see justice, yeah. right, is very interesting. And it brings me to this idea of the, the ag gag and the law's, that are in place, yeah. right? So perhaps you can shed some light on that. And I think also going back to the video that we mentioned before, we didn't we didn't touch on the Chris um, Christelle Force, Christelle Force, and, yeah, because that was a very powerful video. Yeah, let's run through exactly what happened, what he'd done, how he'd ended up in there speaking to the All senator. Right. Yeah, so basically. At the time, uh, he was talking to the senators as a representative of Aussie Farms, if I'm not mistaken, because they wanted, they were basically saying, we're going to start introducing AGAC laws. For those who don't know, and the AGAC law is basically a law that protects the animal agriculture industry. They have it already in the States, and basically it works in a way that even if you are very peaceful, if you in any way cause financial harm, um, or financial loss, let's say, to the animal agriculture industry, you can be charged as a domestic terrorist. So by law, you are in the same category as terrorists. So, so what about the the activists online that are posting videos and content and live in, in the United States? Is that breaching that? Well, the thing is, that's why you don't see those activists in the United States. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it have they they exist, but they don't share it publicly because because that's what the law is for to create fear in people. Because obviously you don't want to. Because I mean, you go to court as a terrorist, you know you're gonna get a long time in prison. I mean, you're literally going to court in the same category as someone who flew a plane into a building, you know. And what did you do? You peacefully entered a farm and took a picture. That that is enough for you to be considered a terrorist by law. So. They're trying to implement this in Australia. They are basically saying you can't enter like these places, even anonymously and peacefully to take videos and then share them online. And Chris Force was there to object this and, and say why this is important, you know? And he was explaining how basically a lot of illegal slaughterhouses have, uh, like not a lot actually, a few illegal slaughterhouses were exposed by Aussie Farms, this organization that 
does these things and saying like, we found this, we found that, we found farms that were extremely, like the hygiene inside was so bad that they shouldn't be allowed to do this because it also impacts the human beings that are eating the animals. So obviously they use different tactics when it comes to activism because obviously they, they're, they're against any type of farm existing. But if a farm is breaking some laws, but then no one can go inside and see whether or not they're doing that, then how do you know who's doing what? They could do literally whatever they want, you know? So he's arguing that whistleblowers and people going inside these places and exposing things is not a crime. What is crime is what's being exposed. And they were just arguing against him with the most, like, honestly... I was embarrassed for them. Like, how could you as a grown-up human being, as a senator, give these arguments? I mean, she, going back to her earlier point, I believe she said animals can be farmed humanely. Humanely, yeah. I mean, yeah, they can be in a farm and be happy, but until when? You know, and the thing is like, as long as they are in the animal agriculture industry, they are nothing but commodities. That's why they're called livestock, because they're stock but they're alive, you know? They're literally seen as objects. That's what they are. They're numbers. That's why they have numbers on them. So so the ag-gag law is to protect the commercial interests. Yeah, the, the big animal agriculture industry. Yeah, and they're trying to bring that to Australia, which honestly is extremely, in my opinion, it's, it's terrifying, not only for animal rights activists, just for Australians in general. Do you really want to live in a country where no one can expose a crime? Like you, by law, you are protecting someone committing a crime, potentially, you know, because a lot of these farms, let's say they can have dead animals inside, which can create diseases, you know, but if no one goes in to expose that you, if you're not vegan, you're going to be eating those products, you know, now, obviously these are different ways of approaching the subject of veganism and animal exploitation, but we need different types of activism to target different types of people and to change the public's idea of what's happening to animals. Because someone can start with that, and then they can think, yeah, but but then again, like, if I don't want to eat from this farm, and why do I want to eat from the other farm? They're killing animals anyway as well. I mean, eventually at the slaughter. It can make a lot of people um, make the connection with time. Killing animals. Mm-hmm. And something that has been quite topical very recently, uh, following the Joe Rogan podcast with, with Chris Cresser. Mm-hmm. You've yes. clearly listened to parts of it. Unfortunately. <laughs> they talk about crop deaths. Yeah. And they talk about the fact that, well, Chris tries to make the argument that there are more sentient beings, whether it's insects or rodents, whatever it is, killed during the harvesting of plants than during animals. So everything in this episode so far, we've spoken about um, animals and, and slaughterhouses. But when someone comes and makes this counter-argument to say that, well, you know, a, an omnivorous diet or a carnivore diet is actually causing less harm. Yeah. What do you think about that? And do you have any statistics to, yeah. to disprove that? <laughs> There's the logical side of it, but I want to use the statistics as well, because unfortunately, a lot of people, when they're arguing, they use some kind of manipulative argument tactics that make you kind of believe them (laughs) when they're wrong. So for example, the studies that some people show like or talk about when they say, yeah, there's a study and it showed that so many animals die during harvesting. Now, actually, let's start from the beginning. 
veganism is about causing least amount of harm that you can. And it also means that you do not intentionally hurt animals. Now, can you never hurt any animal? No, as long as you're alive, that's impossible. You know, as long as you're living, there is some harm being caused to animals, which is why in the definition of veganism, there is the as practically as possible part. When we're talking about that, we have to make a big disconnect between the two words, intentional or un- unintentional. Intentional killing of an innocent sentient being is not the same as the unintentional killing of, let's say, animals that are in fields, in the crops. So that would be similar. Like if just because animals are being killed during harvesting doesn't mean that you should come out of your way to also intentionally kill people. This logic actually is so ridiculous. I could just give a simple example to make you realize how ridiculous it is. If I'm driving a car on the street and I unintentionally hit a dog and kill the dog, does that then justify me going and intentionally hitting all the other dogs on the street just because I also unintentionally kill the dog? No, it doesn't because one is unintentional and one is intentional. Now, this is just logic. <laughs> if he's going to argue that more animals are being killed, then we're going to have to use statistics and numbers. So first of all, the studies that some people mention, actually the main study that some people mention, was a study where they put out some uh, mice in a field and it was a study called the effects of harvest on arable wood mice. They had trackers on them. So they, they knew how many mice there are. And then afterwards, they did the recap and they checked what happened. And this was done by the Department of Zoology of the Oxford University. And they put out mice and 3% of them died because of the harvest, right? That's 3%. That's, now obviously, it's not nice, but it's a very small number. 52% disappeared after the harvest because of predation or migration. So they either left the area or they were found dead because they were killed by like another animal, a predator, 52%. But whoever started using these studies counted these two together, 52 and 3%, just because less animals were there. They're like, okay, they were all killed after the harvest. There were therefore harvesting crops killed so many animals. That's wrong. I mean, the study is there. So the 3% that were killed, yeah. that's like the tractor driving over them, something yeah. like that. Yeah, something like that. But the other, the 50-odd percent that you're saying that weren't there afterwards. They, they, had, they had either left, left the area. Or been eaten by another animal. Exactly, or job. left and then were eaten by another animal. So the thing is, you can't blame, like you, you can't say that the harvesting did that if another predator is mm. killing them. That's just not how it works. Uh, this is very interesting, but is this even relevant when the majority of crops are fed to Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> We really get to that. The thing is, like, there are some numbers, and if you look at the numbers, it's embarrassing that they're using this argument because this is eventually an argument that vegans should be using for, like, as a pro-veganism argument. If you, like, care about wildlife and other animals, the United States Department of Agriculture has all their data online. If you go on Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, you can see that the U.S. Department of Agriculture, known as Wildlife Services, killed more than 3.2 million wild animals during the year 2015, according to their newest data. And the total number of wolves, coyotes, bears, mountain lions, beavers, foxes, eagles, and other animals killed largely was because of the livestock industry. And it was more than half a million than the year 2014. So basically, millions, literally 3.2 million animals were killed only in 2015, wildlife animals 
because they wanted to protect the livestock. So all the predators, let's say, were killed. So no one wants to talk about this. You know, if you're eating animals, you're also pay- you're also paying for the U.S. Department of Agriculture to go out and kill like mountain lions and beavers and foxes and eagles. You know, you don't want to talk about that. It's kind of weird. Then if you want to get to the part where you want to see, okay, how much crops like are we using for a vegan diet and how much are we using for a non-vegan diet? When it comes to beef, 1% of gross animal feed energy into food for people is, is like used for um, food for people. So 1% of all the energy that is, uh, sorry, from the 100% of what you use as food to create beef, only 1% ends up being like beef. So you have 99% of resources that is being misused. And this is coming also from a study that has been done. I can actually pass you the links as well. Yeah, we'll put all of these in the show notes for sure. Yeah. And then there's another research article on Elementa, which is like a scientific journal. And that one showed that a vegan diet requires the one-sixth of total land compared of the omnivore diet. So an omnivore diet requires six times more land um, than a vegan diet. And that is because we need all that land to plant all the crops, to feed 60 billion land animals that we're bringing into existence. So. Obviously, if you're feeding 60 billion land animals and the human population is 7 billion, imagine how much they have to eat. Imagine all the crops that is being used for them, which is why it's like six times more than the vegan diet. Imagine all the deaths that has been taking place. So even if the number of wildlife dying on crops was true, take the number that was being killed on a vegan diet, you multiply that by six, that's an omnivore diet. And then add the animal slaughter on top. And then, uh, exactly. And then add the wildlife that is being killed to protect the livestock as well. And then if you get into more details, the World Bank paper that was talking about the deforestation Mm -hmm. in the Amazon rainforest. I mean, I'm surprised that that's even an argument, to be honest. Honestly, yeah. And and I think Joe Joe knew that wasn't an argument. He he even pressed back and he even said he thinks the the ethical side of the vegan argument is very strong. Yeah. Yeah. But people will try anything. But the thing is like, even when it comes to like the Amazon rainforest, you know, the, the World Bank study showed that 70% of it is because of cattle ranching. So if you have like livestock causing 70% of deforestation in the Amazon rainforest, it's like the leading cause, then you might want to ask yourself if you actually want to use this argument mm. because you care about wildlife or you're just trying to like... It's the leading cause of deforestation in Australia as well. I, actually, I, ha- I got some numbers on Australia. Grazing livestock is responsible mm. for... 54% of Australia's land use, mm. urban usage is less than 0.18% and 8% is conservation. So 8% is conservation and 54% is for grazing livestock. And this is like the source is the Australian government. It's the Department mm. of Agriculture and Water Resources. And yeah, if you think about it, one other thing that people like to do is they say like, okay, well, you're talking about the industry. I only eat grass-fed beef. Therefore, um, I'm not using crops. Well, uh, if you're talking about pasture-raised animals, they're like literally like so responsible for habitat destruction because it's they need a lot of land. They need between 2.5 to 35 acres. And that's the perfect example of like large-scale um, grass-fed cattle. If you think about the Amazon rainforest, it's like the perfect example of what we've done to it. Like the cattle in the Amazon rainforest are grass-fed. Mm. They're literally out there eating the forest. They're grass-fed and they're 70% the reason of deforestation. So 
Yeah, pasture raised, grass fed, all these things. There's a lot of myths about work. grass grass fed beef. Yeah, it just it you, you can't feed the world population. And I mean, they're still thrown in hay bales and stuff. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. From elsewhere, and yeah, and a lot of them are finished. They're finished on grain. Even yeah. Though grass yeah, before slaughter. You know, yeah. They finish for, for the last X days on, on grain yeah. to still qualify as a grass-fed animal. Yeah. I, I wrote a blog recently from a sustainability point of view and, and looked very much at the Australian situation. And the data out there is very clear around grazing cattle. I mean, there's, there's Alan Savory, whose data is not validated, has never been shown to be accurate, who says that, you know, grazing cattle can sequester carbon, you know, and, and, and pull carbon back into the soil. And every time that's tried to be, people have tried to reproduce that, they've seen it's, it, it cannot do that. And even if it does do that, the net emissions from that animal are so much greater. Exactly. Um, and in many cases, this is not saying that that feedlot is any better than, than grass-fed, but in many cases actually the the feedlot animals it's more sustainable it was more sustainable factory farming is more sustainable yeah, than because it was a shorter lifespan yeah which i and found a smaller be, space yeah, smaller space i yeah. found that to be crazy because yeah. most people that are buying grass-fed beef claim uh, to be sustainable yeah well i mean that they're, they're led to believe they're that it's so. sustainable yeah back to what we we're talking about before it's humane but there's there's a lot of advertising and there's a lot of propaganda propaganda that has fed into that. And like you said before, and you were buying the free range eggs, I was the same. I was that person who was buying the grass fed beef. I didn't come from a standard American diet. I came from a diet full of free range free range eggs and, and things like that. So it's it's interesting once you start to to drill down on it. Yeah. It's really, you just have to see the numbers and then you'll see it. It's not about opinions. Let's go through a few more myths or common questions. Uh, you're very active on social media. I've seen that you get an enormous amount of comments, not just from vegans, from from omnivores, some of them very challenging and I admire your patience. And, and you're also out doing activism in the street and, and speaking to people and, and you you must have a very good feel for you know, why people are resistant to change and and the common questions that they, they come at you with to sort of justify the continuation of consuming animal products. What, what are some of the sort of most common questions that you get or statements that you get from people who don't want to change the way they're living their life? Unfortunately, a lot of it is misinformation like they haven't had the right information on what a healthy plant-based diet is a lot of people actually most people don't know that the world's biggest dietetic centers have already confirmed that a balanced whole foods plant-based diet is enough for you to get all the nutrients that you need at all stages of life including pregnancy and infancy and old age and adult everything so once you know that the world's biggest nutrition centers that are backed with like thousands of professionals and hundreds of studies have already said that you can be vegan and healthy. You realize that everything else just doesn't justify it. But unfortunately, people don't know this. And there's a lot of, we live like in the age of information, you know, the Google is just one click away and you can find whatever you want on the internet. If you want to find articles that say veganism is unhealthy, you're going to find it. If you want to find videos that say you're going to find Joe Rogan. But if you want to find articles and peer-reviewed studies 
that tell you how to go vegan and be healthy and healthier actually, and how to help save animals, you're going to find that as well. And I encourage you to do the research. Like, don't listen to me. Don't, don't ever listen to vegans. Listen to science, you know? The science is clear on this. So listen to science. The biggest thing that holds people back is the fact that they don't have those information. That's why I think activism is so important because most people just don't know. And another thing is that most people eat animals because most people eat animals. It's seen as something normal. And that's why in some cities, for example, like in Berlin, in certain surroundings, it's the one who eats animals who is like the... I'd say not weird, but like the different one because so many people have stopped already. So once more and more people start going vegan, we're definitely going to see the amount of, like the number of vegans is going to just skyrocket out of nowhere because it's going to be like everyone knows a vegan or everyone um, has a vegan partner or vegan family member that it's going to be so normal that people are are not going to think twice about it. Like, no, you know that you can be vegan and healthy. You know that all these arguments have been debunked. You know that all these studies have been proven wrong or showed that it was funded by the industry. You know, like you have studies saying that cholesterol is healthy for you, like dietary cholesterol. And then you scroll down and you see that the egg industry funded the study because egg has like a lot of cholesterol in it. I think, unfortunately, misinformation is the biggest thing. After that, I think habit is another reason because you're you're afraid of how much it's going to change your daily routine and i promise you it's not that much like also one important thing is you get used to it so fast like you go vegan first day it's weird second day it's even weirder third day you're like what is going on and then within two weeks you're gonna be like okay this is much easier than what i thought you know you don't have to go buy the vegan cheese vegan burgers vegan sausages you know all the time you can still eat the whole food plant-based diet stick to your rice and veggies and greens and beans and legumes and nuts and seeds you know you're gonna spend more like less money than ever and save more and you're gonna be eating healthier and feeling better and saving more animals or at least not contributing to unnecessary animal slaughter so habits and convenience unfortunately but convenience is changing you know you have vegan foods everywhere now you can no longer just rely on ah but i can't find it or uh, it's not like possible where i am I mean, if you live in the middle of nowhere and you're going to tell me you're not going to go vegan because your local supermarket doesn't have vegan Ben and Jerry's, then yeah, but I'm pretty sure they have rice and beans and potatoes and like real food, you know? So yeah, convenience is always there, but it has become more convenient in the sense of you can still walk into a supermarket and get vegan nuggets and vegan pizza and, and I don't know, everything that you, can, you were having as a non-vegan, just in the vegan way. The vegan option, I mean, with plant-based ingredients that don't cause you like any health issues or at least not as bad as um, the meat mm. product itself. Because yeah, it can be, let's say, processed, which is not the healthiest thing, but it's definitely healthier than the alternative. So yeah, I think first is misinformation and then um, convenience and habits, but all of it can change. So if someone's really resistant and maybe you've had this within your own family or, or friends and and perhaps there's someone listening who completely understands what you're saying. Yeah. But their partner is resistant. Their partner yeah. has watched the documentaries. Their partner likes the taste of meat. Yeah. Doesn't want to change the habits that you speak about. How can you get through to that person best? Download Tinder. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, okay, so if you 
if you're if you have a family member or a partner who's or, or a friend who is definitely like you can see it that they're literally not interested they don't care about their health they don't care about the environment they don't care about ethics or animals don't try anymore that's it that's it's gonna literally it's gonna burn you out if you keep on trying and the more you try they might become like more resistant mm. to it so the way i look at it is if i talk to you about veganism and you're interested i'm gonna keep on talking until like you have all the information if I know you're interested, but you don't want to hear me talking, I'd rather just give you the resources. You do your own research, you know. But if you have literally no interest whatsoever and you you keep on giving arguments that you know, like like Joe Rogan style, I'm not even going to Evolution. Try. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, some people or say canines. like, yeah, oh my God, we could go through that as well. Uh, some people can say that um, our brains became so large because of eating meat, which and was... Um, to, to, to make fire. Yeah. Uh, which was um, debunked like years ago. Um, actually, if you just think about it logically as well, before we get to the science part of it, our brains don't run on animal fat or protein. They actually run on carbs. Therefore, it was actually starches that made our brains bigger. And cooking starches, of course, the fire did play a big role. When it comes to canine, canine's scientific role, let's say, is to hold food in, in a certain position not to kill other animals. And if you think the canines you have could kill an animal, I wish you good luck. I could barely chew kale with my teeth, mm-hmm. let alone, um, yeah, like feasting on and an the, animal. Some of, the, some of the, the biggest herbivores have canines, have the, right? have the biggest canines. The biggest, the biggest canines. Yeah. The rhinos. I mean, you're going to tell them like they should eat meat. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that one of the biggest canines in land animals is is the rhinos and the hippos and yeah, they're not. They don't eat animals. It's not made for that. I mean, if you if you compare the way our mouth is made, uh, most of our teeth are flat and short for grinding. We only herbivores can move their jaws sideways like this because we we grind our food before swallowing it instead of just ripping it apart and swallowing as carnivores do. And then we have a so, so question on that. Do you, yeah. would you would you say we are obligatory herbivores mm-hmm. or are we omnivores? And that means we have a choice. You know, I used to say obligatory herbivores, but I also believe the human body is extremely powerful. As in, for example, our I, I, I've seen, like scientifically speaking, that the human body is not made to digest meat, but we can still eat it and not die straight away because our body is really strong at adapting. It doesn't mean it's changing. It doesn't mean like then you become therefore a carnivore. But yeah, if you want the option of harming your body a bit and unnecessarily killing animals, you can do that if you want. But if you look at all the other things that you have in your body, you know, our saliva, like our, we have carbohydrate digesting system, digestive system. So it's really all made to survive on a plant-based diet. And um, yes, once upon a time in history, we did have to eat animals for survival reasons. And that is completely different. Now we're not talking about survival anymore. I mean, we still live in cities and walk into the same supermarkets. You're not buying meat because you have to survive. You're buying it because of habit, pleasure, taste, things like that. But that can change. You can you still think get to some food. people still see it as safety when they when they when they think of meat. Do you think? Yeah, if they don't have the information, definitely. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And I can't blame them. That that's why I believe we have to do. We have to raise awareness. We do activism for that reason because. I want to give the information that I wish someone else gave to me earlier in, in my life. Because there's a no fear component there. Yeah. Take, if you're going to take away the meat from me. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's my health. That's my, yeah, of course. And that's the, back to what you are saying about that 
some point in time when animal products were required for survival, right? That's that's an ancestral thing. So there's there's a reason there for why that fear exists. But, yeah. But what you're saying is today we live in abundance. Yeah. We have a choice. Definitely. It's it's just there and it's 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 not that difficult, you know. You get used to it so fast and your body will thank you for it. And I think it's very important to also as a society to question what we're doing, to question whether or not this is the way we want to live our life. This is the kind of world that we want our children to grow up in or whatever. We have to think about these things and we have to be more open to criticism and more open to changing for the best because that's what the animals deserve. They're the ones in slaughterhouses, not us. So we have to think twice about it. Beautifully put. So, said before we wrap this one up, where to from here? Can can you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Can you see a day where the animal agriculture industry may be banned? And and mm. for that to happen, what needs to take place? It's a bit difficult because as as we talked in the beginning, like we have the good news and the bad news. You know, I definitely see veganism becoming a much bigger thing in a few years, in the next few years, just also because of looking at how much has changed in the past five years alone, or even three years alone. But if you think about it, if it happens, I believe in my personal opinion, if it happens, it's going to be for environmental reasons, because this world cannot sustain a population that eats animals. That's just like, we don't have enough resources. We keep on destroying our environment. We are burning down rainforests to make way for for cattle ranching. We're using all the water that we have. I think it was like 15,000 liters of water for one pound of beef. Yeah. It's ridiculous. We, we just, it's just not like we can't do it. I mean, I believe either the future is vegan or we have no future. Or like we have a future of worldwide resource wars and climate refugees or catastrophes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, however, I do wish that if a vegan future exists, it exists on the ethical stance of anti-speciesism of animal rights, of saying that we will no more accept to treat other animals differently just because we're not of the same species. And um, on this note, there's actually a very... Powerful, powerful thing you can ask someone. Uh, we kind of, I've kind of forgot to mention that. Like, if you're in a place where you can't argue, like the ethical side of it, you can bring up the name the trade question. Have you heard of it? So, name the trade question is something like it's a question that you ask someone, and if they answer, they basically can justify eating animals. But to this day, no one has been able to answer. And it basically goes like this: name the trade that is true of animals that if true of humans would justify killing and eating humans. So to make it more simple, what is the trait that animals have that humans don't, that if we put, if you, if we take it out from an animal and put it into a human, it would justify eating that, killing that human or treating that human differently. Someone can say the trait is the fact that they're from a different species. Okay, then, well, if another species comes and takes over our world and they decide to enslave us, based on the fact that we're from a different species, will we accept that? No. Therefore, the trait is not species. Someone can say the trait is the IQ level. They're not as smart as us. If we take the low IQ level as trait and put it onto a human, do you have the right to unnecessary cause suffering to someone else who's not as smart as you? No, you don't. Therefore, the trait cannot be IQ. 
someone can say tradition or culture, well, um, we take that trait, we put it onto a human traditionally or culturally. In some countries, it's okay to beat up your wife or stone homosexuals or this or that or female and gentle mutilation or all these things. Does that justify? No, culture and tradition never justify in the injustice. Therefore, the trait is not that. The answer is there is no trait that these animals have that we don't, that if we were to put on a human would justify killing a human. You can also ask the question the other way around, which is what is it that humans have that animals don't, that if we give it to them, we would never do the same thing to them. There is no trait. In the ways that matter, we are similar. And the fact that we are treating them this way, I believe, in my opinion, is the number one thing that also makes way for us to treat each other in a horrible way. You know, the kid who grows up thinking it's okay to play with a dog and kill a chicken uh, starts thinking that physical appearance, like um, difference in physical appearance, can justify injustice. Therefore, that same person can grow up and the idea of exploiting one because of their appearance is justified can easily become exploiting this person because of their appearance is justified you know hurting this person because of their gender or um, or sex is justified or religion yeah religion so speciesism is i believe the root cause of all other type of discrimination and if we get to live in a world where we understand that even the most even the animal that is the most different to us like a fish you know has the right to live then i'm pretty sure the chances of racism or just discrimination or sexism go like it would just go the numbers would just be much lower you know this wouldn't exist because we would even respect those species that are most different to us so we would definitely respect each other as well so yeah i believe that if that world comes it might be for environmental reasons but i also strongly suggest everyone for everyone to fight for it to come on the basis of ethics for other animals sake and for the sake of mankind as well, because we should change. Thank you very much for joining me on the show today. As I said at the start, I really admire your approach. I love what you're doing. If anyone listening would like to connect with you and watch what you're doing or ask you a question, where is the best place to find you? So it's seb.alex on Instagram. That's S-E-B dot A-L-E-X. And then YouTube is Seb Alex as well. And then Facebook page is Seb Alex and Patreon is patreon.com slash Seb Alex. So, yeah. Thanks, man. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. There we go, friends. I must say, despite a rather dark topic, I really enjoyed that conversation. Seb truly does want what is best for the animals. Again, thank you for tuning into this episode, especially for all of you that may hold different beliefs about animal agriculture. This episode wasn't about shaming anyone or making anyone feel uncomfortable. And let's be clear, I don't believe the removal of animal products gives you any form of superiority. Yes, you can be vegan and be a great human, but the elimination of animal products from your life does not guarantee this. What I do believe is that Deep within all of us, we have a set of values and beliefs that are truly us. For most of us at an early age, society robs us of being in touch with these. If you want to learn a little bit more about this topic, I highly suggest you watch 
Melanie Joy's 19-minute TEDx talk on YouTube titled Toward Rational Authentic Food Choices. I've mentioned this before. It's a really interesting listen about why we eat what we do. I'll pop the link into the show notes. If today's episode resonated with you, Seb and I would love to hear from you on social media. Let us know what you thought. Finally, before we do go our separate ways, if you could please leave a review for the show on the Apple Podcast app or share the show on social media, it would be greatly appreciated. It really does go a long way to helping share this message with more people, which is all I wish for for this show. That's all for this one. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.